0: CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left Will, Dr. Smith, and the robot busily repairing the weather station, unaware that a fierce band of giant alien warriors
1: were even now landing on their forgotten planet. Here
2: are the other tools, Dr. Smith.
1: Ah, splendid. Cutters? Cutters. Ah. There. Finished. Finished. William, our operation is a smashing success.
0: The operation is a success, but unfortunately, the patient is dead.
1: Nonsense, Ninny. This weather station is completely operational.
0: You failed to secure the wires of the sensitizer.
2: Maybe you'd better check the wiring again, Dr. Smith, just in case.
1: Nonsense, my boy. It's an absolutely perfect order. Not pick up the tools. Hello, son. Oh, hi, dear. Well,
0: how's it going, Smith? Do you wish to answer the question, Dr. Smith, or shall I?
1: Hold your tongue, sir. Ah, Professor, finished. A push of the switch is all that is necessary. Very good. Then you shall have the honor of connecting the relay station to Jupiter-2. Splendid. Obviously, a faulty
0: relay. Attention, attention, alien approaching.
1: He's a veritable giant. He doesn't seem hostile. Awesome. Let's find out what he's doing here. We've had experience with these strange space creatures before, you know. I'm John Robinson from the planet Earth.
2: He probably doesn't understand us.
1: I'll offer him my hand. That's a universally understood gesture. Oh, it's an excellent idea. Friend. Yes, I'm a friend, too. Ah!
3: Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 37th broadcast episode of Lost in Space, titled The Deadly Games of Gamma 6. And Kurt, before we begin, I have a special announcement to make. Today, Alpha Control Podcast has just surpassed 100,000 Unique Downloads. Wow. Oh, wow, yeah. (laughs) Hey. That's pretty cool, you know, considering if you told me when we first started this gig, if we'd had 100 people listening, I would have been thrilled. So this is really something to celebrate, I think, don't you?
4: Oh, yeah. The the scary thing about it is that even while we're recording now, another person might be stumbling into this trap of ours.
3: It's It's true. It's like a a gill net, you know, it just keeps drifting into the ether. (laughs) Well, you're not done celebrating, sir, because I've got another great announcement. Management has decided to give the entire Alpha Control staff a raise. Ah. Uh, Starting with the on-air talent, so you'll be thrilled to learn, Kurt. They're doubling your salary. How about that?
4: Oh, an excellent idea.
3: (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Twice of nothing is what? Well, it's super nothing. I like
4: it. (laughs) No, it has been a lot of fun, I have to say. I don't think that they could pay
3: enough to justify the amusement that this provides us. So That's true. It's given us a, a great opportunity to spend more time together. We're actually working on something, right?
4: Yeah, would that the, uh, the audience were enjoying it even half as much as
3: we were. <laughs> oh, well. Can't have everything. Oh, wow. Well, a few production notes before we begin with a story. We last heard from 43-year-old Barney Slater in The Prisoners of Space. His script for The Deadly Games of Gamma 6 would be his 12th for Lost in Space, and the third for this season. The plot of this one has echoes of another of Slater's stories, The Challenge, which also centered on a trial-by-combat with galactic stakes at risk. Likewise, both episodes had satisfying endings that featured Professor Robinson saving the day by challenging an alien antagonist to a duel. The fact that Slater is revisiting the gladiator motif is no diss on him, because it does work well, and it's a common enough story device. In fact, Star Trek's second season episode, The Gamesters of Triskelion, which aired later in January of 1968, would also make use of the cage match theme. But Kurt... If you believe all the similarities between episodes of Lost in Space and Star Trek are merely coincidental, then please explain how the gamesters of Triskelion featured a planet named Gamma 2. Oh,
4: wow. I forgot that's what they named that fighting planet in Star Trek. But I'll never forget Kirk's gladiatorial trainer... The very beautiful Angelique Pettyjohn in that, mm. oh, so sexy, silver bikini costume. <laughs> no wonder Kirk was gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> K-On, sir? K-On?
3: Already? <laughs> <laughs> Took them all of two minutes, guys. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, she was something else. She was beautiful. Uh. You know, it's funny. Star Trek would actually reuse that cage match theme in an even more obvious matter <laughs> later in season two. They had an episode titled... Bread and Circuses. I don't know if you remember that one. That's where uh, uh-huh. Kirk and the uh, his fellow Star Trek officers are forced to fight in a literal gladiator game mm-hmm. on a planet resembling a 20th century version of the Roman Empire. That one was even more obvious. Yeah, I think that, you know, it was so similar to that first one. A lot of people confuse them. It's true. But, you know, I always thought it was funny how Gene Roddenberry had come up with this whole fictional thing they called the the Hodgkin's Law of Parallel Planetary Development. So you'd go to a planet, there'd be the Roman planet, there'd be the Western planet or or the Nazi planet. And, uh, of course, that was all designed to uh, save money because they could use the uh, Hollywood backlot there at Desilu Studios to film these different planets. You got to love. He's, I guess he had a little Irwin in him, didn't he? <laughs>
4: Oh, yeah. In fact, what, what do you say you Call that? The Hoskins Law?
3: H- Hodgkin's Law of Parallel Planetary Development.
4: You know what they should have called it is the Irwin Allen Law of Recycling <laughs> Planets. You know I mean? <laughs>
3: Please. That's great. Wow. Well, unlike Star Trek, one thing Lost in Space rarely gets kudos for is its use of the sci-fi format to, quote, teach a lesson. Especially given Irwin Allen's famous axiom, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, though, there are many episodes of Lost in Space that are heavy on entertainment and light on anything deeper. But to be fair, we've seen plenty of others that do give us a little more to chew on. And dare I say it, Slater's script here does have some clearly expressed themes. For example, the exchanges between John and Will about the true nature of courage, as well as choosing when and when not to fight. And despite his protestations to the contrary, Irwin must have been okay with a little meaning in between explosions, monsters, and other thrills, because Slater ultimately penned 22 episodes of Lost in Space, second only to Peter Packer. Oh, wow. So how many
4: plots did Peter Packer pen? But seriously, it's worth noting that A major difference was that Lost in Space touches on these themes while Star Trek often bashes you over the head with them until you cry uncle. That's true. But, you know, preachy plots can be fun, too. In fact, my favorite program for programming audiences, it wasn't a sci-fi show at all. It was a Saturday morning superhero show from the 1970s. Do you remember that live action series where Billy Batson would turn into Captain Marvel by shouting, oh. Shazam, 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 <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> they not only made sure each episode taught a lesson, they actually had Captain Marvel appear at the end of each program and spell it out to the kids just to make sure they got the message. <laughs> It was literally brainwash, rinse, and repeat. It drove me crazy as a kid. But now, thanks to Metamucil, (laughs) I just sit back and enjoy it
3: as unintentionally funny and wonderfully weird, you know? Oh, gosh. It was weird. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Well, 58-year-old director Nathan Juren was also on board last time for The Prisoners of Space, where he earned brownie points with Irwin by calling rap in only five days. Of course, as we mentioned, that was helped by the fact that Prisoners was a clip show, so there was less new material to shoot. For this episode, during seventh for the series, he managed to stay in his boss's good graces by finishing in the allotted six days, from the 22nd through the 29th of August, 1966. And once again, Nathan came in on budget without cutting corners and kept things interesting with clever framing, novel camera moves and positioning, as well as gifted handling of the actors. You can tell Juran was engaged by the excellent performances he got from Guy Williams and guest star Mike Kellan, as well as Jonathan Harris. In fact, except for the training session and the fight scene, which are clearly going for laughs, Smith's qualities of greed and cowardice are played with only a slight comedic edge, and help to make this version of our Reluctant Stowaway much more believable than some of the recent episodes. Results like that kept Juran busy, and he would ultimately earn directing credits on 25 motion pictures and episodes of 13 different TV series, including all four of Irwin Allen's 1960s sci-fi adventure shows. Wow, what a greedy SOB, you know?
4: I would have been thrilled just to direct one episode of Irwin TV, you know? I would have done it for free, mm. but it, it probably would have been a little bit awkward, you know, getting instructions from a four-year-old,
3: I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, this episode aired Wednesday night, November 2nd, 1966, and it got no summer repeat. Hmm. All our regular characters are featured on this one, and guest starring as the intergalactic fight promoter, Maiko, is 44-year-old actor Mike Kellen. Slater's script described Maiko as a burly, rough-mannered alien of the Ernest Borgnine type. Huh, did he ever fit that description? He even had the famous Borgnine front tooth gap. Oh yeah, he absolutely did. That's (laughs) That's right. Central casting. Exactly. Well, Mark Cushman agrees with you, Kirk, because in his Lost in Space book, he said Kellen was the embodiment of that specimen. With his coarse facial features, tired eyes, and flat, monotone voice, the actor had been cast in a variety of TV and movie roles as a, quote, tough guy, both good and evil. Irwin Allen was familiar with Kellen since he'd previously hired him to appear on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. For this episode of Lost in Space, Allen paid Kellen $2,000, A hefty sum for a week's work in 1966. Mm -hmm. Kellen ultimately went on to rack up over 100 acting credits before his early death in 1983 from lung cancer. That's a shame.
4: Yeah, but he was an interesting character. He played a lot of army corporals and sergeants in different films. But in World War II, he was actually lieutenant commander in the Navy. Wow. He also played some great TV roles in One Step Beyond, Gunsmoke, Combat, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and even The Twilight Zone. But the saddest character he played, at least that I'm aware of, was an American prisoner's father Mm -hmm. of a prisoner who was stuck in a Turkish prison. Yep. It was in that 1978 movie, Midnight Express. It looks like you remember that movie, right? That was an Oliver sure. Stone movie. It's one of the better Oliver Stone movies. Right. He starred Brad Davis as an American tourist who was tossed in a Turkish hellhole prison to rot for drug smuggling. And Kellen is helpless to get his son out. Now, those scenes were heartbreaking, but even worse was what was happening behind the scenes. To Brad Davis, of all people, because it turns out he was in real life a drug user. Oh. And he shared needles with someone who had AIDS. Oh. And he ended up dying from AIDS in 1985. Wow. Now, here's where things get kind of weird, because Brad Davis was from Tallahassee, and his father happened to be my dentist. And Dr. Davis had just performed a root canal on me when the horrible news hit. And my mom, <laughs> you remember my mom? Oh, yeah. She's very, very protective at everything. She liked Brad's parents, and she felt terrible for them, but she was also terrified at the prospect that maybe the drill, the syringe, or something else was contaminated. You know, how, how do you even broach that conversation with the father who just lost his son? So, you know, it was a long shot. Yeah. No pun intended, but the parents were paranoid in 1985. AIDS was just getting identified. Rock Hudson had died from it that same year, and people weren't even positive how it was being transmitted. Right. They said sex, and they said needles, but a lot of Floridians were afraid that it might also be transmitted through mosquitoes, which, of course— is our state bird here, you know? So those were scary times, and I still feel terrible for Dr. Davis and all the fallout his practice must have experienced because we weren't the only ones who were worried about it, and it just, you know, the news traveled like wildfire back then, and everybody was you know, so paranoid about that disease and what was going on. Sure. Anyway, I believe you are talking about a happy-go-lucky comedy, weren't you? <laughs> I just spoiled <laughs> the mood, but how can I forget that?
3: Yeah, well, that's uh, kind of a a strange coincidence, though, that your dentist was the father of the actor that played that role. But I had no idea that he was actually a drug user like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny you talk about AIDS. I remember that time. Everybody was kind of paranoid about the whole thing. Uh In fact, the famous Dr. Fauci at first had a slogan of how AIDS was transmitted. He called it Fauci's four H's, Haitians, hemophiliacs, heroin and homosexuals.
4: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, talk about politically incorrect, man. (laughs) I know. That's Dr. Fauci, though. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, if they're trying to go after a scalp now, they should just play that clip over and over again in a commercial.
3: That would do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's too bad about Kellen dying from lung cancer, but he does kind of seem like he has a smoker's voice, don't you think?
4: Yeah. 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 And and how old was he? You said it was 19...
3: uh, 1983. So that was uh-huh. basically 20 years. So he's back in 61. Uh-huh. Was, I think, 61, 62, something like that. So the good die young, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. Well, one other note about Michael's character. The wardrobe department must have also thought this episode was similar to the challenge, because they took Michael and Sarah's alien ruler uniform out of mothballs and gave it to Mike Kellen to wear, which, thanks to Color TV... We can now see is dark green, Uh but at least they didn't make Kellen wear that bald cap. (laughs) Instead, he got to wear a groovy jeweled headband around his alfalfa-styled hairdo and a phony goatee and carry a really cool ornate ceremonial dagger as well. I thought that was kind of a neat mashup. (laughs) That's right, Dr. Smith, a ceremonial dagger. I would never dream of using
4: it as an actual weapon. Oh, man. And why would he have that? You know, I mean, this guy's from the future and you're going to have a dagger? You know, where's your laser gun? (laughs) Oh, Actually, that reminds me of a very funny story that Mike Killen recounted in the Joel Eisner book, Lost in Space Forever. Mm. Killen said, I remember I had to get my costume approved by Irwin Allen. I was in a sort of green blouse with a black skirt and some kind of jewel in my forehead. My hair was done rather funny, and I really looked pretty weird. When word came down to the costume department at Fox that Erwin wanted to see me over in his office. That meant I had to go over from the costume department at one end of the studio lot over to the other end of the lot where the offices were. I was kind of embarrassed to walk across the lot that way, and no sooner had I stepped out of the costume building than James Coburn came driving by in his car and slammed on the brakes and looked at me in this strange get-up and said... (laughs) Hiya, baby. You working?
3: <laughs> Isn't that a riot? Oh, dear. Wow. That's exactly right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, playing the part of Geo, the mighty might from outer space was 61-year-old little person actor Jaime Lichtenstein, who went by the stage name Harry Monty. The actor would eventually rack up numerous credits in film and TV. Perhaps the most famous film he appeared in came early in his career, though, when he played both a munchkin and a flying monkey soldier in The Wizard of Oz. Ah. Although this is the only time we get to see Monty's face on Lost in Space, he would be in several other episodes as various alien creatures. He also stunt doubled for Bill Mumy before Sandy Gempel took over that job at the start of season two.
4: Ah. Well, you know, Jaime was a midget, so that's completely different from a dwarf because all his physical features were in proportion to the rest of his body. Right. But even so, I'm willing to bet this is the only time he played a boxing role in Hollywood. What do you think? I'm pretty sure you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if he played that kind of flying monkey creature in Prisoners of Space. I think that was Sandy. Yeah. But remember they had that character?
3: Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure that was Sandy, but uh, yeah, actually, I'm almost positive it was because I think she mentioned she did that part, but yeah. yeah, he was in a couple of episodes. I think he plays a little elf or something like that in that the Vikings from space or whatever. Oh, Remember? okay. Yeah,
4: that's right. Yeah, they
3: had those two little uh, gremlins or whatever they were. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have to look out for him in the future. Uh-huh. Yes, little Jaime. Um <laughs> <laughs> Prolific character actor Peter Brocco was 62 when he was cast as the sinister alien leader. Ooh. <laughs> With over 300 appearances in TV and films, Brocco normally played minor roles in a career that spanned 60 years. Among his many credits, in addition to this episode of Lost in Space, he would also work for Erwin Allen on one episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and two Time Tunnels. Ah. Well, in contrast, little is known not even his age, about Muscleman character actor Ronald Weber, who played Gromack. But we do know that his only other acting assignments were also on Lost in Space, for equally small roles in a later Season 2 episode titled A Day at the Zoo and Season 3's Space Beauty. Wow. Well, finally, 46-year-old Chuck Roberson played the other unnamed alien giant, The six-foot-four stuntman and actor was also known for his horsemanship and dined out on westerns for both the big and little screen. A favorite of John Wayne, Roberson wound up being cast in 18 of the Duke's movies. Pretty impressive, Pilgrim. Oh, yeah. I wonder if he got any residuals. Eh, probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Well, I'm sure he didn't get any from the Irwin Allen estate.
4: (laughs) Yeah, that's a given.
3: Exactly. Well, once again, there was no original score written for this episode. Instead, it was tracked effectively with very familiar music cues, most by John Williams and Herman Stein from Season 1. Such great music. You know, that's the one thing I never get tired of Irwin Allen recycling. Exactly. No, they're great. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser starts with the narrator reminding us that, Last week, we left Will, Dr. Smith, and the robot busily repairing the weather station. All were unaware that a fierce band of giant alien warriors were even now landing on their forgotten planet. (laughs) When Professor Robinson scales the bluff overlooking the chariot to check on Smith's progress with the repairs. The arrogant antagonist brags that he's finished and just a push of the switch is all that is necessary. But predictably, the demonstration ends with a nasty flash powder explosion and a scream of shock (laughs) (laughs) from the rattled rascal. But just then... B9 alerts of an alien giant dressed in strange gladiator's garb who approaches our confounded castaways, then rewards John's universally understood gesture of goodwill with treachery and mercilessly assaults poor Professor Robinson. Stunned, Dr. Smith cowers behind Will as the attack intensifies. But even though he appears outmatched by the alien aggressor Somehow, John manages to best the brute By forcing him off the edge of the bluff Everyone sighs in relief But Professor Robinson's reign as King of the Hill Is all too brief Because suddenly, he's blindsided When an even fiercer fiend races in
4: Dad, look out!
3: lifting the professor up like a ragdoll, high over his head, and threatening to toss John off the rocky ledge to certain doom. What now? Ah, oh, poor, poor
4: John. He didn't realize that he was in for a wrestling match with the Giant, let alone with two of them playing tag team. Yeah. He never even had a chance, especially since his only potential
3: tag team partner is Dr. Smith. <gasps> The pain. Yeah. And even the robot can't intervene because he starts to, you know, do his claws and Will says, no, no, you might hurt dad. So. Yeah,
4: I'm glad they added that little bit. Otherwise, you know,
3: we'd be ragging him for that. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, the professor's fall from grace is cut short when another alien appears and orders the gruesome Goliath, who he calls Gromac, to put John down, wearing a sinister smirk the alien crosses his arms and introduces himself in perfect English as Maiko. Surprised at how well the professor fought, Maiko taunts by adding that it is said throughout the galaxy that Earthmen are weak and without courage. Ooh. Uh, You
4: know, that was kind of a weird line. Yes. Not just because it was directed towards John Robinson, you know, a.k.a. Zorro and Captain Courageous, Mm -hmm. but also because the only Earthmen to leave Earth by this time, in, what was it, 1997, 1998 by now, were Jimmy Hapgood and Alonzo P. Tucker Mm -hmm. and the Robinsons. So that's not too much of an exposure for an entire galaxy, Uh, which reminds me... If Maiko hadn't met any Earthlings before, how is it that he speaks such good English that doesn't even have an accent, you know? <laughs> w- where does he practice it? But those are just two little nitpicky things aside. They do get kudos for their subtle tip of the hat that English is not universal, because when Maiko tells Gromac to stop, he calls out in a foreign language. Did you notice that?
3: Yep. That's right. Yep, he does. And he'll use it again uh, later in the episode when he tells Gromac to you know, perform some more feats of <laughs> of strength or something like that. So, yeah. Actually, I think I read that, that that was just an ad lib by Mike Kellen. But it, I, I like the fact that they did that. That was really neat. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. And it's also kind of funny how uh, Gromac manages to get in a speaking role because he just repeats certain words like, yeah, yeah. fun, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like he's learning it.
3: A la Frankenstein fun. Yeah, me like. (laughs) Me like.
4: Little girl with daisy. Yeah. (laughs) Crush, kill, destroy. (laughs) Uh,
3: That's funny. Well, despite the taunting, John resists rising to the bait, but is repaid for his cordiality with another perfidious performance. When the alien distracts. Behind you, Professor. Then sucker punches the professor with a sneaky left hook. Right in the kisser Wow Sheesh Gromac restrains the Riled Robinson from retaliating While Mr. Maiko, wearing a snaggletooth grin Claims the dirty trick was, quote, merely a test And he meant no offense <laughs> <laughs> Boiling inside, John tries to stay cool on the outside And demands an explanation for the alien's senseless behavior
4: Oh, wow, you would think he'd be boiling on the inside and outside I know I would be and you would be too, but right. John only looks a little put out, you know. It seemed mm-hmm. unnaturally restrained, in my
3: humble opinion. What do you think? No, I agree, and, and especially since Maiko drew first blood, so to speak, because you can see yeah. they painted on a little uh, <laughs> little ketchup or something, uh, uh-huh. food coloring around his lip. So. Wow. Yeah, that's he broke the skin. <laughs> but the important thing is he
4: didn't mess up the hair. <laughs> uh, that's
3: one thing about Lost in Space. Every hair is in place and they are so clean shaven. I mean you have no hint of a five o'clock shadow on those men. It's amazing.
4: Especially Zaro, man. I've never <laughs> seen
3: anything like it. Uh, well, Miko smugly explains that he's a fight promoter. Every year he holds a series of bouts on the planet called the Gamma Games, which are televised throughout the entire galaxy. And witnessed by hundreds of millions. Sporting a bloody lip, John snaps back.
1: Well, you've got a great rating, but what does that gotta do with me?
3: The pompous promoter answers by saying that the professor should be very happy because he has chosen him as one of his fighters. Hmm. Then adds with a sardonic smile, you may become champion of the entire galaxy. Uh-oh. <laughs> Wow, I'm not sure what John's thinking, Kurt, but based on the way we've seen these aliens behave thus far, I'd say the odds are against these Gamma Games being anything like a fair fight. What say you? Well I'm still trying to get my head around
4: this situation Michael claims he holds a series of bouts on this planet every year and he's excited to recruit a puny human mm. I mean, isn't there anything more formidable in the entire galaxy mm. try the Cyclops monster that would seem a little more exciting to me or oh. or how about the sand monster you know if you need something a little smaller to fit in the ring
3: I'm just spitballing <laughs> here but Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's funny, but I mean, this guy is really weird the way he reacts and everything too. It's just kind of And did we
4: forget to mention Maiko and Gromac? They all look completely human. I
3: mean, there's no difference at all. Oh, yes. No, yeah, that's right. No spray paint, no nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, Lisa was commenting too on Gromax's outfit. She goes, "Wow, he's got a bare midriff. That doesn't <laughs> that looks like, <laughs> that doesn't look very masculine to me." Like, well, they're competing with I Dream of Genie that episode. <laughs> oh man! Well, just before we go to opening credits, the camera lingers on Professor Robinson's face as he grimly contemplates Mister Miko's offer to join. The Deadly Games of Gamma 6. This is Craig Reimbrecht from the B9 Robot Builders Club. When I'm working on B9 Robot parts, I always listen to the Alpha Control Podcast with Lane and Kurt. When we return from the break... The camera follows as the hurt hulk that Professor Robinson forced off the hilltop earlier sheepishly climbs back up to join the group. When the credits end, John responds to Mr. Maiko's proposal by insisting that he's no fighter, so it's thanks, but no thanks. Wow. Astonished at the rejection, the crafty caller baits the professor, asking if he realizes what it could mean to become champion of the entire galaxy. Mm. Unmoved, John firmly tells the alien he's got himself the wrong man, then instructs a puzzled-looking will to come along with him back to the ship. Spurned, Michael turns back to Dr. Smith and expresses regret that Professor Robinson has passed up a magnificent opportunity. Sensing an opportunity of his own, our scheming scoundrel cuts his eyes as the alien explains that no Earthman has ever fought in the Gamma Games before. Hmm. As such, the entire galaxy will be watching. What's more, the winners are rewarded not only with galactic glory, but riches beyond your wildest dreams. All of which Dr. Smith finds very, very interesting indeed. <laughs> Preferring to work without an audience, Smith quickly ushers roly-poly rowdy B-9 out of the area so he can conduct his private business with Mr. Maiko alone. (laughs) (laughs) After the robot rolls out of earshot, Dr. Smith dons a business-like face and opens.
0: Mr. Maiko, you were saying riches... I think you and I should have a little talk. What did you have in mind, Dr. Smith?
4: I had in mind Professor
0: Robinson.
4: How would you like to have him fight in your games after all?
0: I'd be delighted, but he's already turned down my offer.
4: A decision which was made in great haste.
0: Are you saying that you can get him to change his mind?
4: No doubt about it at all, my dear sir. He and I enjoy a very close relationship. He always follows my advice on important matters.
0: No one can doubt that your opinion is extremely valued. Thank you, my
4: dear sir. Your perception both delights and amazes me. All that is required is that I suggest that he fights, and it will be done. Naturally, as promoter, mm-hmm. I shall expect a few minor considerations for myself.
0: Minor considerations? How much, as you call it, is the payoff? <laughs>
3: <laughs> payoff, sir? It's such an unpleasant word, isn't it? Michael nods in agreement, but holds his tongue.
4: I shall require half of those great riches that you mentioned earlier, as well as passage for myself back to Earth.
0: Dr. Smith, again, as you say, you have got yourself a deal.
4: And you, sir, have got yourself a new champion. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, Both men exchange swindlers' smiles and greedy giggles before Maiko suddenly brings the mood down by directing his wrath and his jeweled dagger towards his now useless wounded warrior. Horrified by the alien's callous outburst of brutality, Dr. Smith nervously intervenes to restore calm. Mm. Checking himself for the moment, Miko returns his weapon to its scabbard, then turns syrupy, while disingenuously explaining his threats were merely meant to teach the poor man a lesson. Mm-hmm. As the alien giants trade bewildered glances, Doctor Smith falls for Mister Miko's act and departs the scene after complimenting the alien on being basically a very kind man. <laughs> <laughs> With Smith gone, the camera pushes in as Maiko's face turns quickly from sweet to sour. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know, Kurt, I liked the chemistry between Mike Kellen and Jonathan Harris during their little negotiation part of that opening scene. It was classic. But one other oddity worth commenting on is that Maiko refers to the contest as the, quote, Gamma Games, and this episode has... Gamma-6 in the title. So that kind of leaves me thinking that this planet's official name is Gamma-6, even though it's not exactly stated during the episode, or for that matter, the entire time the Robinsons are marooned on this miserable veil. At least in season one, you know, Will did explicitly tell us in Return from Outer Space that their planet was called pre So it's kind of weird, no?
4: Well, yeah, but Pre-Planets was blown up in the first episode of Season 2 as they left. Right. Uh, Although we never figured out how they knew the name of that planet. But the funny thing is, when I heard the title, The Deadly Games of Gamma 6, I thought they were referring to the planet that organized the games, not the one that they were being held on. Mm. But either one, you know, would make sense. They, right. They named the Olympics after whatever city they're being currently held in. But Correct. But even that is a little confusing because the first city was called Olympia, and that's still in the name. So sure. maybe these games are from Planet Gamma but held on Planet Six. <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs> I just... You split the difference? <laughs> groping for straws here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, okay. Well, it's not canon either way. I don't know. I was just, it's just kind of strange that Gamma Six is in the title, but it's never really explicitly stated. I mean, maybe it got cut out of the script. I don't know. Well, I got a theory
4: about that, but I'm going to keep my powder dry for a little bit.
3: Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll look forward to hearing that. So, all right. Anyway. (music) Well, moments later, we're back with the rest of the family at the Castaways campsite. While Marine nurses John's head wounds with some gauze and water. Ouch. Looks like they remembered to pack everything on the Jupiter 2, cart except the Bactine.
4: Uh-huh. I like to think it- she was using alcohol. That would have been even better. You know, <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Remember Mercurochrome? That was another thing. They used to uh-huh. paint that orange stuff on your wounds. Yee.
4: And I always like that. What's that other stuff they used? To, not formaldehyde, but um, oh, uh, uh,
3: it was hydrogen peroxide. Yeah,
4: Hydrogen peroxide. It looked like alcohol, yes. but it didn't hurt at all. Mm-hmm. You know? So for a brief moment, you're sitting there going, is this that one or this one? You know, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Maybe it's carbon tetrachloride. Oh, there you go. There you go. Wild. Well, everyone's mesmerized as Will dramatically reenacts John's David versus Goliath fight with the alien antagonist. Everyone but Dad, who halts his son's proud blow-by-blow description right as he was getting to the best part. Uh, Well, you know, I don't want to interrupt Will's exciting story, but I have to
4: ask... Where's our missing camper? Mm. You know, we're outside Jupiter 2 with all the remaining cast members, except the one that's been mysteriously missing since Prisoners of Space. Mm. Yeah, I'm not referring to Debbie. The bloop wasn't in that episode. But what about that talking cube device that the Galaxy Tribunal left right outside (laughs) Jupiter (laughs) 2? I mean, it just kind of disappeared for Android machine and it's gone now. Where'd it go?
3: (laughs) Well, as you say, (laughs) we're not supposed to remember anything from the previous episode, are we? Oh, I guess. I hadn't even thought about that. That's great. Wow. <laughs> well, maybe it'll show up again. Who knows?
4: I'm sure it will in another contraption of some <laughs> Recycled somehow.
3: <laughs> That's funny. Well, just then, Dr. Smith suddenly arrives on scene and attempts to bait the professor with several backhanded compliments such as,
4: Even a rabbit will make a stand when he has no other choice. Wow. That from the master. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Seeing right through the mendacious miscreant's reverse psychology ploy, Professor Robinson forcefully tells Smith he's not going to fight in Maiko's games, and that is final. Sounding disappointed, Will insists, Dad could beat anyone if he really wanted to. Isn't that so, sir? Softening, John supposes that while, in most instances, he could give a good account of himself, primarily, he's a scientist.
4: A man of books, not battles. Unfortunately
3: doggedly focused on his own hidden agenda. Dr. Smith just won't drop it, stating that, personally, he thinks the professor would win the games, but taunts again.
4: Of course, if on the other hand, he's afraid of being defeated.
3: Fed up with all the badgering, John bolts out of his chair and furiously blares back at Smith.
4: All right, Smith, since you're so
1: brave and with Michael's help you could be a champion, why don't you offer to fight? But get off me!
3: As Professor Robinson storms out of the frame, a bewildered Dr. Smith muses aloud.
4: Good heavens! Now why do you suppose he got so upset?
3: Marine acidly answers.
1: Dr. Smith, you try my patience.
3: Before dutifully following after her hot-headed husband. Mmm. Then the camera closes in as Dr. Smith's eyes narrow. If at first you don't succeed, Try, try again. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, Kurt, I get Professor Robinson's logic for not wanting to enter those Gamma Games. He doesn't care about glory, and even if he knew about all those riches, given what we know about his character, he wouldn't be interested anyway. But his final furious reaction to Smith's needling seemed a little bit over the top to me. On the other hand, being called a coward by Dr. Smith, of all people, would be pretty hard to take. What did you think?
4: Oh, yeah. But, you know, Michael never offered to take the Robinsons back to Earth, and John never asked for any help in that department, which seemed kind of odd. Right. Only Smith bothered to ask, and, of course, the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. But he was told in secret because he had sent everybody else away. Yet now everybody seems to know returning to Earth is part of the equation, as part of the prize purse. So, presumably, Smith told them in order to encourage John to fight. That would get my attention if I thought it was sincere. After all, they were willing to split up their family and send their two children back to Earth with a complete stranger, Jimmy Hapgood, you know, in a previous episode. Yeah. Maybe Don should volunteer to fight. You know, he took on Hapgood for smaller reasons than that in the same program. Mm. But for whatever reason, their toxic masculinity has suddenly been replaced by this high-minded pacifism this week. Mm. Did you catch the exchange between Judy and Will? When Judy said that she thinks it's smart to avoid dangerous fights, Will says he thinks it's kind of cowardly. Yeah. Now, that was clever telegraphing of the conflict we're about to see unfold between Will and his father real soon, and I thought that was a real nice touch.
3: That was a nice touch, yeah. But it was a typical, you know, the little boy versus the older sister kind of conversation, too, so it fit pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they don't explicitly tell you that – Going back to Earth's part of the deal there, but they seem to understand it. They do later,
4: but they didn't at the beginning. Yeah. And you know, you almost, I remember when I first saw it, I'm sitting there going, well, why are you offering him riches? Offer him a ride back to Earth. That'll get his attention, but no.
3: (laughs) Wow, you could be a champion of the entire galaxy.
4: (laughs) Yeah, this guy has kind of a, he really relishes the language, the way he delivers the lines. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's fun just to watch him deliver the lines. It's a little bit like Jonathan Harris that way. You can take a mundane line and you can make it fun just the way he delivers it.
3: Yes. No, I'm digging this guy. It is a little overacting, but it's it's good overacting, you know. Just
4: like Harris, yep. Exactly.
3: Mm -hmm. Yep. I like it.
4: It calls attention to itself, which of course they both love to do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
3: That's funny. Well, later that night, with the act nearing a climax, we dissolve to the alien encampment, which is dominated by a device the teleplay describes as the quote alien summoner. It's a pair of large and very recognizable transparent cylinders, one of which just appeared in last week's episode, the android machine. It's still warm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But at least we get two tubes for the price of one. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> that price being zero, because these are obviously redressed freezing tubes recycled from inside the Jupiter tube.
4: <laughs>
3: of course. Yep. How could we not have seen that? Mm-hmm. Well, they paint them red, you know, you're not supposed to notice, right? Yeah. Well, something new we can see in the background is a traditional-looking Earth-style boxing ring surrounded by several other pieces of strange alien equipment. Mm -hmm. And finally, a green one-man pup tent. Yeah. As the tension builds along with the sinister music, Maiko emerges from inside the tent, scans the area for intruders, and then creeps silently over to one of the empty tubes. After he enters, the cylinder illuminates accompanied by a high-pitched sound effect which causes the alien to come to attention. Facing the other two, he prayerfully closes his hands in anticipation when suddenly a familiar electronic <laughs> announces the appearance in the opposite cylinder of a regal-looking bearded humanoid. Uh-oh. I say regal because over his lime-green tunic and pants, this older, stern-faced visitor is wearing the long, silver-scaled royal robe last worn by the Ming-like villain from Season 1's The Lost Civilization, along with Officer Bollocks' low and brown neck medallion, and topped off with a new piece of headgear worthy of Dr. Smith's haberdashery collection. It's a dark green kamalavka, which is a tall cylindrical hat made from camel wool yeah. and worn by certain clergymen of the Greek and Russian Orthodox Church. And yes, I did have to look that up. I, uh-huh. I recognized it, but I didn't know what it was called, so I learned something from Lost in Space.
4: <laughs> oh, goodie! <laughs> <laughs> wow.
3: Well, in any event, it's a nice mashup of old and new wardrobe pieces that imply, without ever being explicitly stated, that this character... Is as the script names him, the quote, alien leader. Ooh. How dare
4: you interrupt my low and brow break with your communications? This better be good. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I love that, the low and brow medallion. That's funny. Yeah. Well, in a scene reminiscent of Darth Vader's hologram conversation with Emperor Palpatine in The Empire Strikes Back, the camera cuts between close ups of Mr. Maiko and his. Master. Although he's found an ideal candidate for the games, Miko admits thus far he's been unable to convince the Earthman to agree. Intrigued, the leader orders his servant to get the alien to fight,
4: <laughs>
3: adding ominously that it is very important to their future plans to learn more about the strange and unpredictable people of Earth. Uh-oh. Maiko assures his malevolent master, even if Professor Robinson continues to refuse, there are other Earthlings on the planet. Oh boy. Uh Eyes widening, the leader commands One of them must be in the games. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Responding to his master's final haunting words, Maiko says he understands and bows just before the alien leader pops out of this world. Oh, dear. Wow, Kurt, I really liked the sinister vibe of that act-out scene, and it did remind me of that classic bit from The Empire Strikes Back. Uh You know, in fact, as originally conceived, the scene was supposed to be even more similar. In a note about it from the production coordinator, Les Warren, to Irwin Allen in The Lost in Space book, Warner suggested illuminating Miko's tube with a practical onset lighting, but for more dramatic effect, having the alien leader appear behind an animated beam, somewhat like a hologram. Ah. Unfortunately, Irwin must have done some quick math and realized with the leader character appearing several more times in this episode, that kind of drama was way <laughs> too expensive. Instead, a cheaper way was found. Having the alien pop in and out without even the obligatory flash powder explosion. You gotta love Irwin, right?
4: Oh, yeah. You know, way
3: too expensive translates
4: into any cost more than a free <laughs> in-camera edit. Erwin <laughs> <laughs> would rather spend that money on 33 cent per gallon gas for his Rolls Royce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get it. You know, they spent millions of dollars getting the series this far, and they want a fast return on their investment. The sooner the better. But come on, Irwin. Try to keep You'd be classy. Couldn't you at least fade the alien in with a cheap double exposure and a cool sound effect, you know, just to mix it up a little? I mean, come on. I mean, people get enough of that stop the camera, move the person off screen, and then resume filming trick every friggin' week on Bewitched, you know? But what do you know? That series went on for nine years, so who am I to talk?
3: Wow. Yeah. And uh Michael can't even wiggle his his nose like uh <laughs> Samantha, right?
4: I can hear him in the background Oh they they're gonna love this effect. They loved it last week. We'll do it just like Bewitched. They keep coming back for more. Yes, <laughs> but it still was a cool scene. It was a wonderful scene, even despite that one little. But
3: it could have been better. We know it, and we're not going to yeah. let it slide. <laughs> I know, but it does remind me of that scene. You know, an Empire Strikes Back with the emperor. You know, the, yep. just the way, the vibe, and everything it was really cool. And we have now, to
4: say, we have to keep reminding people when we say it reminds us of what we're really saying is that that's probably where they got the inspiration for that scene. This came first. Oh yeah, Star Wars. They 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 ripped this series. Off
3: mercilessly. Absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, they always talk about how Lucas and Spielberg stole from Star Trek, but I see a lot more Lost in Space in those movies, the Star Wars movies particularly, than I do in Star Trek. Including you know?
4: the sound effects for the TIE fighter, you know? Right, right.
3: Exactly. They never get the credit they deserve. Well, I know we love to dog on uh, Irwin's riftiness and everything, but to be fair, in a note that he wrote to story editor Tony wilson Kurt about Slater's original version of this scene. It was Irwin Allen's idea to add the veiled hints about why the alien leader was so interested in having an Earthman fight in the games, sort of answering your earlier question about why Miko <laughs> is trying so hard to get an Earthman in. Because even though it's not spelled out yet, I do think those veiled hints certainly ratchet up the sense of jeopardy for the Robinsons, don't you think?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was a nice touch. Adding suspense and foreboding. And I like the cones of silence plastic tubes. <laughs> I just wish they would the extra mile, you know, yeah, yeah. to avoid the cheapo in camera edits. But, you know, I'm an ingrate. What can I say?
3: But, you know, you have to think about it now that I'm kind of pondering this thing. Why does Miko have to get in the tube? At all. (laughs) I can see why the alien would appear in a tube if it was like a hologram or a transporter device or something like that. I mean, is the leader actually there? Or is he, you know, it's kind of strange. So why does Mike go in a tube? (laughs) He's not going anywhere. Sorry, Chief, we'll have
4: to instigate the Cones of Silence. No, Max, not the Cones of Silence. (laughs) Sorry, Chief, I can't hear you because of the Cones of Silence. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Oh man Well, having received his marching orders Maiko checks to see the coast is clear Then disappears into his tent But we'll have to wait until after station identification To learn what diabolical plans These aliens have in mind for Planet Earth
1: space will continue after station identification. This is CBS.
3: When we return from the break to start Act 2, it's next morning at the Jupiter campsite. Professor Robinson, with a little help from Will, struggles with a large piece of high-tech equipment. If that prop looks familiar, Kurt... That's because we saw it used previously in Season 1, both as a water distillation unit in The Oasis and a deutronium refinery in attack of the monster plants
4: (laughs) oh wow so it was previously a water purifier and a jetronium refinery yep that that explains so much that tells us why they were never concerned about their youngest son collecting radioactive rocks because he's drinking radioactive (laughs) water so why worry about it
3: Uh, (laughs) hey god wow where's osha that's crazy yeah I think, if I'm not mistaken, that prop's not only re- recycled from Lost in Space, but it's actually a prop that was in one of those Iron uh, Man Flint movies with uh, James Coburn, the kind of the knockoff uh-huh. James Bond movies. I think someone mentioned that previously in our episode. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well they never tell you in this episode what it's supposed to be. It's just heavy. (laughs) Yeah, that's the whole point.
4: I always get a big charge out of the fact that the insulator fins on these things are always clear plastic. (laughs) You know, plastic is that's not gonna release any heat. It's gotta be, you know metal. It's gotta be ceramic, you know, or metal. Yes. But no, they always go with the cheap plastic. Exactly. Oh. The less you know about these things the better. (laughs) Uh, But hey,
3: it looks cool. (laughs) Yeah. Well, observing from his perch on the Jupiter-2 ramp, Dr. Smith appears unusually interested in their toils, but waits until after John manages to finally upright the heavy machine before offering to be of assistance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As father and son continue to work, the devilish double-talker showers the professor with another round of flowery praise for his strength and athleticism. John refuses to bite, But Will proudly informs us that Dad was a three-letter man in college and had an offer to play in the NFL. Wow.
4: Uh Well, that was fun to find out. You know, I try not to brag, but I was a three-letter man in high school, so I guess Mm. I was a three-letter boy. The only problem was that the three letters were (laughs) (laughs) B-A-D. My senior class was so small, they were desperate to fill the slots. I don't think I even won third place in swimming or track, not even once. The only thing I ever remember accomplishing was that in soccer... I managed to tangle up my legs with the other guy if he got too close to our goalie. <laughs> you
3: know, so it pays to be a clutch sometimes. Yeah. Well, I was no star athlete either. I mean, I was on the swim team in high school, but I hated it because mm-hmm. practices were always like at five o'clock in the morning, you know, and I really got tired of hearing <laughs> that coach walking up and down the, yeah. the side of the pool yelling at me, you know, when I was <laughs> just... Yeah,
4: but at least you were in Georgia. I was in Missouri, or as we described it, misery. Because the swimming pools there, it was winter, you know? Mm. Why do they have it in winter? So the moment you go outside, your hair freezes. Oh, boy.
3: (laughs) Yep. Wow. That's crazy. Yep. Wow. Well, hoping to divert the conversation, Professor Robinson offers the fawning physician a chance to help with their work. However, (laughs) despite claiming that he's delighted to join in, the only muscle Smith exercises is his mouth, which he uses once more to cajole, then badger the peaked patriarch into accepting Mr. Maiko's offer. But John's patience has its limits, and when Smith fails to heed his warning to leave, he boils over again, chasing the skittish scoundrel out of the area. Mm-hmm. Regaining his composure, Professor Robinson turns back to his tight-lipped son, who he rightly senses can't understand his refusal to enter the games. Kneeling next to the disappointed lad, the camera switches between close-ups of the pair.
1: All right. Say what's on your mind, son. I wasn't thinking anything, sir. Come on.
2: I was just wondering if, well, maybe Dr. Smith's right... It wouldn't do any harm to enter Mr. Michael's games. And if you won... Yeah,
1: we could all go home and live happily ever after.
2: Something like that.
1: You're disappointed in me, aren't you, son? Well, of course you are. Every son wants to feel that his father's the greatest, that he can succeed in anything.
0: And you can, too.
1: No, no, son, I can't. I'm a man like any other man. Some things I do well, others I don't do so well.
0: You could win in Mr. Michael's games. I know you could. Maybe,
1: but I'm not a fighting man, son. I'm a scientist. My battles are fought in a laboratory, not a prize ring. You understand? I guess so. Let's get back to work.
3: This heartfelt exchange ends lingering on John's face, who, despite being confident in his grown-up ideals, looks troubled. He might have lost some of the luster in the eyes of his little boy. Wow. You know, Kurt, I liked that we got a little bit more of that biographical information on Professor Robinson here. But to me, the heart of the scene was how bothered John was by Will's disappointment in him. Uh And I can say, as a father of three boys myself, I've had a few of those moments. And even when you're right, they do sting. Mm -hmm. But I don't think his explanation, I'm a scientist, not a fighter, would satisfy me if I were Will either. How'd that scene strike you? Oh, I agree. It it was painful to watch from a parent's perspective.
4: Mm -hmm. It reminded me of Michael Jackson telling the equally mild-mannered Paul McCartney, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Before breaking into that soy boy duet, the girl is mine. Remember that? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I would have preferred a more pragmatic explanation. Something like, son- I don't trust these aliens. Michael was deceptive from the start, and we've had numerous other aliens lie to us as well. Right. Because, let's be honest, they have. You know, all that glitters, His Majesty Smith, the ghost planet. Yes. Beware of aliens bearing gifts or offering riches beyond your wildest dreams, because those dreams usually turn out to be nightmares. Exactly.
3: You know, it's almost like he's so bent on teaching Will a lesson... That he forgets some of the other practical reasons why it doesn't make sense, you know, for him to jump into the ring with the, uh, with Gromac, so to speak. So, yeah, that's a great point.
4: But that's the one part of continuity that we have to remember. It's the one continuity rule they always follow in Lost in Space, which is never acknowledge any continuity from any other <laughs> episode.
2: <laughs>
3: Bingo. Mm. Well, that evening, with the act reaching a crescendo, we get an expansive look of Mr. Maiko's campsite, which is festooned with colorful flags and banners as a half-dozen alien fighters train for their upcoming matches. Just then, the camera tracks down to reveal Dr. Smith and Will quietly observing behind a large purple boulder, still grousing about the professor's refusal to seize that, quote, golden opportunity, Smith takes Will along to tell Mr. Maiko the bad news. But rounding the corner, Dr. Smith is startled by the sight of Gromak, who crushes a large stone into powder with his bare hands. Oh dear. Wow. Just then, Maiko arrives and welcomes them to watch his fighter's special training session. Well, Smith's ready to retreat, but Will begs to stay just for a little while. With a little prodding from Myko, the fearful physician reluctantly agrees, and they're rewarded when the alien proudly plays tour guide and has Gromak demonstrate some more amazing feats of strength, including crushing yet another rock, bench-pressing a set of pink barbells weighing 40 times his weight, <laughs> And finally, donning a galvanized glove, then using it to karate chop a small boulder in half.
4: (laughs) Ah, Good heavens!
3: (laughs) Will seems impressed because he gulps, golly! (laughs) Oh man. And I love those pink barbells, Grimac
4: lips with great effort. You know, remind me to get a pair of those for my five and eight year old girls. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they look as fakey as they actually were. Yes. Irwin should have used standard black or gray so the weights look like metal instead of pink styrofoam. But, styrofoam. But no. <laughs> he's hell-bent on getting his money's worth from that extra 50K he's spending for color film. Yeah. So he's got to compete with Batman with that color, you know? So it was just a big design fail, that one aspect. But you want to know what was not a fail? A subtle but wonderful detail they included in the background. Or to be more precise, what they did not include in the background. Oh. I was so hoping I would see this or that I would not see this that I looked really really hard and they did not disappoint I'm referring my dear Watson to the curious incident of the missing fighter the first fighter that we saw at the beginning that Michael threatened to kill with his knife until tender Smith talked him out of it or so Michael claimed Ah. but I checked all the guys practicing in the background and he was nowhere to be seen wow (laughs) he's been eliminated and I just thought that was beautiful
3: Oh, that poor, poor man. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. Wow. Yeah. That's wild.
4: Huh. Yeah, and you'll notice that Smith didn't notice that or ask about him or anything. It's just out of sight, out of mind. no.
3: <laughs> no. You know, I'm going to have to start watching these episodes on VHS instead of Blu-ray, because I keep missing some of, the, some of these things. But I did like those pink barbells. But, you know, uh, was it Ronald Weber? The, yeah. the actor playing Gromac was really trying hard for an Emmy, because, he boy, he was trying to make those things look heavy. I mean, <laughs> uh-huh. But it was so obvious. Yeah, and I
4: also got a charge out of the fact he crushes it with his bare hands, okay? And then he lifts the barbells. And lifting the barbells doesn't seem as impressive as crushing it with your bare hands. Yeah. But then the real uh, showstopper is when he puts a metal glove on and he uses a karate chop to smash it. Look, I'd be <laughs> much more impressed that you crushed it with your bare hands. I mean, come on, these displays are getting weaker and weaker and weaker. You better get out of there before he's like blowing the dandelion seeds out with
3: his bare breath. You know, <laughs> right?
4: <laughs> Look at this, fun.
3: Mac <laughs> <Grow back> indeed. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Well, Dr. Smith changes the subject by asking their duplicitous docent about a strange-looking contraption. We learn comes from the planet Lothar, and it's called the, quote, Wheel of Life. Mm. <laughs> but it should be called the Wheel of Death, because despite being adorned with twinkling lights, this circular silver turntable is no Christmas decoration. Cautioning Will not to touch... Miko explains that five of its six tubes send forth harmless puffs of smoke. The sixth is a deadly laser beam. Wow. Two opponents face each other across the wheel. Taking turns, each presses a button, which activates the weapon at his opponent. If the weapon is a blank, the wheel rotates into the next position, and the game continues until the laser ends it and one player's career. Miko ends the demonstration with a bang by firing the diabolical machine's laser into a nearby rock. Oh boy.
4: Oh dear. Good heavens.
3: Well, pleased that Will seems to understand the joy of honest physical combat, Miko gives the boy a small cosmic pop gun for training, which can only hit the target when it is within three feet. <laughs> uh, well, Will thanks the alien for the gift Then is invited by Dr. Smith to go look around the camp While he and Mr. Maiko have a little chat As Will departs, our attention is drawn to an uneven boxing match Between two alien fighters One giant and one very diminutive mm. As the sparring continues behind them The cowardly conniver confesses that his attempts to get Professor Robinson to enter the games have been unsuccessful. Grievously disappointed, Maiko's eyes narrow as he sizes Smith up.
0: You are not exactly an ideal specimen, but I have an idea. Mr. Maiko, are you suggesting that I participate in the games? Why not? With the proper training, I think you would do very well
3: distracted as the little alien fighter receives a giant jab into the ropes. Smith gulps.
4: I think not. My inclinations lie towards less strenuous
0: activities. I shall be frank with you, Dr. Smith. I must have an earthling in the games. In order to achieve my objective, I am willing to make certain concessions.
4: Pray continue, sir. You interest
0: me. With my help, You could be champion of the entire galaxy. Not only would you return to Earth, but you would go back a very rich
3: man. Cutting his eyes, the devious doctor responds. You present a most tempting offer.
4: You did say something about concessions?
3: Glancing over at the ring, Maiko slowly answers.
4: I invite you to
0: pick your own opponent.
4: It's very generous of you, my dear friend. I do hate to refuse you, but...
3: Smith's interrupted mid-sentence when the pygmy pugilist is knocked completely out of the ring and apparently down for the count. That is until Gromac tosses him back into his sparring partner's overgrown arms, who proceeds to stand the baby boxer up, then delivers the coup de gras. <laughs> Taking it in. Doctor Smith suddenly turns Las Vegas odds maker. You ever uh,
4: did say I could select anyone? Anyone. Even the little one?
0: Come now, Dr. Smith, you're twice his size.
4: You said anyone, Mr. Mako. So I did. Then you, sir, have got yourself an Earthman contested. <laughs> <laughs> oh
3: dear. <laughs> Well, once more the two con artists exchange knowing laughs, and before he heads back to the ship with Will, Doctor Smith offers Mister Maiko a friendly adieu and finger wave goodbye. <laughs> once they're gone, the alien saunters over to the comatose competitor and congratulates little Geo on his very convincing performance. Right on cue, the miniature mercenary comes alive and returns to his sparring match. But this time, Geo deftly avoids being bested when he disappears with a (laughs) before the oversized oaf can even lay a glove on him, but then turns the tables by popping back into sight, then popping the bewildered brute right in the kisser. Oh, dear. Wow. Maiko crows that At least it'll be a humane victory. Yeah. (laughs) Adding as Geo takes the winner's seat on his knee that Dr. Smith will never know what hit him. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Kurt, that cool Wheel of Life gizmo was interesting to me on two counts. One, it was not a recycled prop from a previous Lost in Space episode. And as far as I know... It wasn't used after this, so write that down in the book, sir. Yeah, this is a record breaker. It is, it is. Two, it has to be one of the greatest examples of what writers called the Chekhov's gun device I've seen Barney Slater use since the neck ring Dr. Smith wore in All That Glitters. But you had to know, when Micah went to all the trouble of showcasing the Wheel of Life to Will and Smith, it was going to play a major plot point in the story, right?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like the Jack and the Beanstalk fairy tale when the mother tosses the magic seeds out the window. Yeah. Every kid knew after such a big buildup, those seeds were not going to just rot and disappear. You know, something right. big was going to
3: happen with them. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs>
4: Which just kind of adds to the excitement because, you know, uh, this is going
3: to come back. We're going to see this. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing about that scene, you knew Michael had to have a trick up his sleeve when he quickly agreed to let Smith fight the midget. I mean, he protested a little, but it wasn't very much. So I have to ask again, Kurt, after being tricked so many times by aliens before, why? Why didn't Dr. Smith smell a rat? Uh, Well, you know, I suspect Smith's nose hairs were distracted by
4: another smell, the smell of money. Mm. You know, Smith is basically motivated by two things, the carrot and the whip. The whip is his fear of something, which in his case is virtually everything, you know. While the carrot is usually the 24-carat variety like gold or diamonds, you know, Mm. or maybe a free trip home. (laughs) It never works out and he never learns, but, you know, that's just him.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Wow. Well, the camera tracks in as both aliens cackle in glee. But we'll have to wait until after the commercial to see if Dr. Smith winds up being saved by the bell or down for the count. Lost in Space, brought to you by...
2: When I get a hurt, I ask my mother to get the back team. Bactine
4: is a powerful antiseptic. It hurts the germs, but it doesn't hurt you. I have to go to bed now, but my father will finish the commercial.
0: And while Larry sleeps, the Bactine germ barrier continues to fight germs hour after hour, guards against infection during the night. To Bactine, the only good germ is a dead germ. 97,
3: when we return from the break to start 99. Act 3, it's next morning, and we're back at the Robinsons' camp as Will, Penny, and Coach B-9 assist Dr. Smith train for his upcoming match. <laughs> Time. Dressed in plain gray sweats and a Navy baseball cap, our cocky contender orders towels and refreshments from his seconds after finishing his reps, then pushes the heavy orange punching bag out of frame only to have it deliver a comedic low blow to his backside as he turns to greet Professor Robinson and Major West. Uh, indeed. Everyone saw that one coming a mile away, especially since the punching bag is out of the frame for like 10 seconds before uh, yeah. before it comes swinging back into view. That was funny. As Will offers the... Pompous peluca a ladle from the water bucket. John asks, All right, Smith, what's all this about?
4: Now then, Professor, since you have seen fit to shirk your duty, I, Dr. Zachary Smith, must save our brave little band from its dire fate. I shall fight in the games of Gamma Six.
3: <laughs> the Professor and Don digest the absurdity of it all, as the churlish champ excuses himself for more conditioning, conditioning. Uh-huh. <laughs> Then, as Smith pumps iron in the background, Will excitedly offers to show Dad the interesting weapon that Mr. Maiko gave him. But when the boy demonstrates how it works by scoring a perfect shot into the swinging punching bag, he's visibly let down by his father's remark that it seems to be a rather primitive way of proving courage. Mm, wow! Maintaining a respectful tone, Will tells his dad that He's just too intelligent to understand. Exasperated, John tries to explain. He wants to get off that planet just as badly as Dr. Smith, but there are just too many things about Mr. Maiko's games that don't make sense. Then John tries to teach a larger lesson, that sometimes it takes more courage to refuse a fight than to accept one. Will maintains a golden silence, but his eyes are saying loud and clear, that he's unconvinced by his father's words and excuses himself to help Dr. Smith get in shape for the games. The camera lingers on John's brooding face for a heavy moment before he disappears inside the ship. You know, Kurt, I hate to criticize Professor Know-it-All because I think he was making some good points, but I think he got off on a bad foot when Will demoed that dart gun. Don't you think? I mean, I just think he could have acted a little bit impressed.
4: Yeah, yeah. That that was the height of disrespect. When your son would rather watch Dr. Smith do geriatric exercises than <laughs> listen to his dad talk about courage. I mean, come on. Yeah. But but I got to address this small cosmic dart gun that you mentioned. Yeah. I had experience with one of those when I was 14 or so. And I can tell you, they don't test courage They test intelligence. Uh, And that's a test a friend and I, we failed with flying colors. That's Because that's basically a spear gun. Right. And it has a cord to prevent the fish from taking off with your spear after you've impaled it with it, right? Sure. But here's the problem. Everybody knows to be careful where you point a gun because it might go off. But with a spear gun out of water, you can't point it anywhere. Because no direction is safe. Mm. I had a friend, his name was Brian, and we were given a spear gun like that at Camp Indian Springs, you know, where we were little uh, junior counselors. Mm. And uh, they were throwing it away, and we said, hey, give that to us. And unfortunately, they did. Ah. And we raced down to the spring, which emptied out into this swamp. Which had alligators and these six foot long garfish that would come right up to your canoe. You know, everybody loved these things because they'd scare the hell out of you. The teeth were just like jutting out of their mouths, but they never bit anybody. They were just curious. So we knew we were going to find something cool to shoot. The only question was what? You know, now of course, looking back now, I realize it was cruel and stupid, but that's what kids do. Right. Well, Brian saw this turtle sunning itself on a log and thought, "Buster, your turtle time is terminated." He aimed that spear gun and he fired it, and that short spear got within an inch of impaling that turtle mm. until the cord stretched out to its limit and then snapped the spear back into Brian's face. And the back end of the spear detached the retina. In his eye It wasn't bloody But boy was it painful I bet Oh yeah And it permanently blinded him In that left eye Wow So my advice to John And any other parents out there Is if you want to come across As cool with your kids Sure let them repair Deadly robots (laughs) And reassemble laser guns And even collect radioactive rocks But do not allow them Spirit (laughs) guns Because nothing good Will come from it
3: It sounds like it You know that reminds me You know that movie A Christmas story With the Mm -hmm. little kid Who wants a Red Rider BB gun what was his mom always saying? You can't have one because you'll shoot your eye out. Well, this yeah, <laughs> your friend, literally shot his eye out. You know, it's so obvious when you stop and think of it. It's got a cord on it. Of
4: course, it's going right. to bounce back and hit right. you out in the air. It is. But in the water, it's never a problem. It just, the spear falls harmlessly in the water. But wow. I mean, yeah. that, I'm surprised there weren't major lawsuits over stuff right. like that.
3: Well, we all did stupid things when we were a kid. And this was the, you know, that
4: was part of the fun.
3: Yeah, this is before, like, they had the Darwin Awards or what was that? Yeah. TV show they had Jackass or something where you <laughs> dared people to do these stupid stunts. <laughs> you didn't have to dare us when we were kids. We were just liable to do those things on our own. That's crazy. Wow. It's
4: pretty sad though. I often wonder how you know because sometimes if you lose the sight in one eye, you can lose the sight in the other one in a sympathetic reaction. And I always oh you know, pro that
3: he's doing okay. Wow. Well, now how do we get out of this? <laughs>
4: There's another downer. <laughs> we're in a box canyon again, my dear boy.
3: <laughs> How do we get out? <laughs> exactly. Well, if this were Batman, I'd give you a an exploding cigar and then go, Oh, the green shadow is lifted. I'm my old humorous self again. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, done with the barbells, Dr. Smith leaps down from the training table and announces in triumph
4: Ah,
1: my boy, my muscles are like strands of steel You
4: sure are taking your training seriously, sir
1: I always say, if you do it at all, do it well A great deal depends upon my winning towel Winning towel, coming up And refreshment? Yes, sir
3: Smith then turns his ire towards his other punching bag, the robot
1: Why are you standing there like a mechanical monolith? Massage! Massage!
3: Climbing back on the table, Smith lies on his stomach and continues to verbally rabbit-punch the mechanical masseur.
1: Suppose my muscles stiffen. you want me to catch cold?
0: I am sorry, Dr. Smith.
1: Spare me the apologies, you ineffectual ineptitude. And be careful the last time you've only cracked several ribs. <laughs>
3: <laughs> While B-9 lets his magic claws work the knots out of Smith's delicate back, the camera pans left to follow Penny, racing inside to fetch the demanding doctor's iron tablets from inside the ship, then stops on a cross-armed Mr. Maiko, who's dropped by to see how his future galaxy champion is getting along.
1: Good morning, sir. Ah! Oh, gently, you clumsy cloud! I'm not made of iron, you know.
0: A little while ago, you said your muscles were like strands of steel, Dr. Smith.
1: And so they are, William. But like the strings of any finely tuned instrument... They must be played. <laughs> Not plucked!
3: <laughs> Even though Will says they have him trained to a fine edge, uh-huh. his comedic complaining about the clumsy Claude's carapsia make it clear that Dr. Smith's training regimen has a long way to go. When Penny races out of the airlock with the doctor's medicine, Mr. Maiko excuses himself to join John and Major West by the ship. At first, the alien appears delighted to see the professor. But when John questions Smith's unlikely participation in the games, Maiko's expression darkens, and he becomes evasive. Even more so when Don asks the alien about the purpose of the games. Eyes narrowing, Maiko icily states that the competition is merely for spectacle and entertainment. Incredulous, Professor Robinson retorts, And nothing else? Maiko answers by not answering, then tells the all too confident Dr. Smith that he'll see him tomorrow at the games. Mm. The scene ends with John and the Major watching as the agitated alien storms off. Wondering what had their promoter friend so hot under the collar. They decide to investigate by repaying Mr. Maiko's kind visit with a nocturnal courtesy call of their own. Oh, boy. Kurt, I'd love to play cards with this Maiko character because he has a poker face worse than Smith's when he gambled with Mr. Nerum, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I agree. Maiko would make a, a poor, poor poker
4: player. <laughs> I did get a big chuckle out of the girly wave that Smith gave Maiko as he left the camp. <laughs> Harris must have known how effeminate that looked and how it totally undermined any chance that he had of winning that match. <laughs>
3: Uh. Yeah, he's high on his own supply. That's for sure. But he knows the fix is in. I mean, that's the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's funny though. Why is he even bothering to train if he knows Yeah. <laughs> if he knows he's going to win. But
4: Well, cuz he gets to order all those people
3: around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Including B-9. I love how he, mm-hmm. he just berates the poor robot. The I am sorry, Dr. Smith. I'll try hard. Try hard. <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> oh, you might crack a rib. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it wouldn't be Alpha Control if I didn't point out a little nitpick alert here. You might notice, Kurt, when B-9 shuffles around the training table to give Smith that uh, massage we do get a quick glimpse of Bob May's black stocking feet sticking out from those accordion legs.
4: Eh, don't bother me shooting it. Nobody will notice and everyone will have a cow if we take more than six days. So, cut and print.
3: (laughs) That's exactly right. Wow. Well, Later that night, we dissolve back to the alien camp where Professor Robinson and Don secretly observe just as Maiko reports to his master via the summoner tubes that all is well.
1: You have persuaded the Earthman to enter the games.
0: Yes. A certain Dr. Smith, however, he was not my first choice.
1: That is unfortunate. Nevertheless, you have a contestant. I have notified all the other military leaders of the galaxy. They will be watching.
0: Yes, Michael. I'm not sure. This Earthman is entirely representative of the people of his planet. He seems to lack courage. It is regrettable that you did not get a
1: better specimen. But the decision has been made. We will act accordingly.
0: I've selected Geo to fight the Earthmen. An excellent choice.
1: If the Earthling does well, we will reward him handsomely. If he loses, his planet will suffer the consequences. We will
0: invade his world and subdue it. Tomorrow, we shall know which it is to be.
3: Then, with a familiar pop, the loathsome leader vanishes, leaving John to grimly remark. Now they know why Maiko wouldn't tell them the real purpose of the games. With a sense of urgency, the men race back to the ship, leaving us to wonder if there's still a chance to keep Dr. Smith out of the games and save Earth from certain doom. Oh, dear. Well, Kurt, I am digging those scenes with Mr. Maiko and his master. But John and the Major were sure lucky they happened to arrive just in time to eavesdrop on that conversation. Like they say, I guess timing is everything, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. And we're also lucky that those aliens are basically deaf because John and Don don't whisper at all. It's not even a (laughs) stage whisper. They just talk like they know that the aliens won't hear. I guess those big plastic tubes really were cones of silence.
3: Oh, Well, you know, one thing I did like about that scene with the master and everything, uh, when the emperor says, you know, it is unfortunate that you did not <laughs> get a better specimen. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me, maybe the reason <laughs> that Maiko has to get into a tube is in case the leader gets really pissed. It's a disintegration tube. And he <laughs>
4: oh, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. A- that'd be even better than the Star Trek. Hand me your agonizer. Yeah. <laughs> no, not
3: the agonizer. They have failed me for the last
4: time. <laughs> they had that, that TV series called The Office, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the, the boss is famous for doing all these inappropriate things. I think I would be even worse than that guy. Because if I were a boss, I would just insist that everybody walk around with a little agonizer on their chest, <laughs> even if it didn't work, You know, just, just to have it. You know, Don't make me grab the agonizer.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, because that was the episode uh, Mirror, Mirror, wasn't it? The, alter- yep. the alternate mm-hmm. universe thing? Yeah. It would kind of be fun to see if they had an alternate universe lost in space, what that would be like. Where-
4: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, if I ever become a vendor at a Star Trek convention, I'm going to sell those agonizers. It'll just have a little vibrating thing, you know? That'd be, it'd make a buzzing sound and vibrate. That'd be great.
3: Like those buzzing things that you put in your hand, you know? Right. The joy buzzer. Shake your hand with this.
4: (laughs) Yeah. We'll call it your joy
3: agonizer. Uh. (laughs) Because it's a joy to agonize. Someone else. It is, it is. Well, you know, another thing about that scene—what happened to Michael's goons? I mean, wouldn't you think when he's making a top-secret phone call like that, he would have some standing guard just in case there were spies lurking about? But
4: yeah, yeah, but maybe they were too worn out from all that styrofoam rock crushing, <laughs> you
3: know,
4: and they needed their beauty sleep. But bringing up guards begs another question about this gang. Are they willing participants or are they all constricted and forced to be there like prisoners? I mean, think about it. The Earthlings didn't know about the penalty for losing because they didn't subscribe to this intergalactic sports channel, you know. But according to Maiko, everyone else does. So they should know the score. Mm. Did they know going in that they would be killed if they got wounded practicing like our first fighter did? Yeah. Or did they volunteer to fight anyway?
3: For the riches, yes. or
4: to save their own planet from invasion, you know, inquiring minds want to know.
3: Mm. Well, as Michael says, poor man, he's not very intelligent. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I love the way they look at each other when he says, like, uh. yeah." <laughs> and of course, it's a foreign language, yet they still seem to understand what he's saying. So yeah. maybe he's more intelligent than they give credit. Exactly.
3: That's great points. <laughs> Well, next morning, the screen is filled with an oversized oval yellow patch with the moniker Tiger Smith in bold black letters. As the camera pulls away, we can see the emblem is on the back of Dr. Smith's shiny new royal blue silk boxing robe, to which Mrs. Robinson busily adds the finishing touches. A stern faced Professor Robinson tries in vain to warn the deluded doctor that
1: Mr. Michael's games are no joke. They're a deadly serious business. I'm fully aware of the responsibilities involved. You know, Smith, if you happen to lose, you could be placing Earth in great danger. I have no intention of being defeated. Well, of course you haven't, but something might go wrong. You forget, madam, I have seen my opponent. Let me assure you I shall be an easy winner. You know, Smith, just because you're being matched against some little alien doesn't mean you're going to win. I mean, this could be some kind of a trick or something. Spare me your dire doubts, Major. Mr. Maiko is a gentleman of integrity. He has assured me that I shall be the champion... And I believe him.
3: (laughs) But Professor Robinson doesn't, and orders Dr. Smith not to leave the campsite until after the games are over.
1: Let me remind you, Professor, you have no authority over me.
3: Glaring at Smith, John commands B-9.
1: You're a city with it. Dr. Smith stays here. I don't care
0: how you do it.
3: (laughs) As Professor Robinson marches out of the frame, the robot responds wittily.
0: There's only one way to handle a tiger.
3: (laughs) Kurt, Dr. Smith's been struck with gold and earth fever so many times I've lost count. And up till now, I expected him to take the bait. But after he heard Micah was hiding the real purpose for the games, I have to admit I was kind of surprised he still trusted him and seemed determined to play along. (laughs) Am I missing something here?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I think it's another force field factor situation, you know. They are arbitrarily turning off Smith's ability to reason in order to make the plot work. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they can't turn off the audience's ability to reason, so we're all scratching our heads thinking, WTF, you know? Yes. (laughs) But hey... Who cares if the fight really makes any sense? The important thing is that we're going to get one, and every red-blooded American loves to see a fight. In most instances, we want to see a good fight, but right. in Smith's case, we'll just be happy to see him get the tar beaten out of him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Even if it means our planet will be invaded, it'll be worth it. You know?
3: Finally. yeah, <laughs> Finally, somebody <laughs> lay a glove on Smith. He just skated by so easily.
4: Dude, I, got I think it's, it reminds me of Don, you know, when that the raft is sort of like, where he's saying, even if the ship crashes, he said, at least I'll have the chance to see you <laughs> go down with me. You know? <laughs> That's funny.
3: Wow. Sometime later, we dissolve to the sight of Dr. Smith, caged behind bright red jail bars that are held tight by an oversized silver padlock, incensed, the crazed captive rattles the cage and rails at the despotic dunce to let him out at once. Yeah. Pacing back and forth outside the cage as he performs his guard duty, the callous captor pauses to listen when Dr. Smith tries a different tact.
4: You ought to be ashamed of yourself after all I've done for you. Done for me? Yes. Where were you before we met? A hulking mass of mechanical ignorance. A nothing. A nobody. Who programmed you? Who spoon-fed you the facts of life and made you what you are today? A sleek, sophisticated, charming companion. Answer me. Who?
0: You did, Dr. Smith.
4: Yes. And who keeps you oiled and shined and working properly?
0: You do, Dr. Smith.
4: Yes. I've been your friend, your confidant, You'll protect her. And now you repay me like this. I think I'm
0: going to cry.
3: (laughs) Rolling closer, B9 answers.
0: Forgive me, Dr. Smith. I am truly indebted to you, but I have my instructions.
3: I understand, my dear boy.
0: Are we still friends?
3: Of course we are. Shall we shake hands? With a slight turn of his ear sensors, the gullible guard offers his claw in friendship.
4: There! No.
3: Only to be duped when Smith reaches through the bars to deftly pluck B-9's power pack in one smooth move. Yeah. Even though he's been laid low by Dr. Smith's treachery, the catty con artist can't resist gloating.
4: You thought you'd get the best of me, did you? Well, you better think again, you traitorous tin plated fugitive from a junkyard. There!
3: Taking the key from the robot's left shoulder hook, Smith unlocks the cage, then scurries over to grab his fighting gear from the training table. But before making his escape, he minces back over to his motionless monitor and bids him a last syrupy adieu, nitty before scampering out of the campsite. (laughs) Moments later, Will arrives to find the robot immobilized, the cage opened, and Dr. Smith nowhere in sight. Uh Uh-oh. Retrieving B-9's power pack from where Smith left it inside the cell, the boy quickly restores his silenced sidekick to full function. When he comes to, B-9 beats himself up for being tricked, but Will keeps them focused on the task at hand, catching up with their wayward welterweight so he doesn't have to face all those aliens alone. With no time to lose, the two faithful friends race off to give Dr. Smith a puncher's chance. You know, Kurt, I can't blame Dr. Smith for trying to escape, but what I do wonder is how B9, who once claimed to know Smith like a brother, allowed himself to be duped so easily by smith's fake tears any theories there no
4: i don't but Mm -hmm. i can't figure out how the robot built that cage without smith noticing it and running away before he got tossed inside but (laughs) given that that they did have to try to you know stop smith from doing the fight you know and he had to foil them i like this solution a lot I also like how when William replaced the power pack, he took the time to brush the sand off of it, you know? That was a nice little subtle touch. Yeah. I wonder who added it. Was it the writer? Was it the director? Or did Billy himself think of it? You know, whoever it was, kudos. That was a nice touch.
3: No, it was. It made it seem all the more realistic, you know? Yeah. That's very cool. Well, next, with the act nearing its closure, we're back at the Gamma Games Arena as Tiger Smith, Still brimming with confidence, prepares for his inevitable victory by donning his robe and congratulating himself on his splendid form. Yeah. Spotting Gromak's armored gauntlet, the boastful brawler decides to warm up with a little kung fu conditioning of his own.
4: Gromac indeed.
3: Unfortunately... Even with the metal mitten on, instead of the rock, it's Smith's hand that's nearly split in two. <laughs> <gasps> oh, oh, the pain. <laughs> Just then, Mr. Maiko arrives to help his pompous patsy, who's comically struggling to remove the glove from his painful paw. Uh-huh. The alien smiles broadly as he greets a delighted Dr. Smith with the good news that everything is ready and waiting for him. In fact, so great is the interest in the Earthman's event that he scheduled it first. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the mendacious manager proudly points out the solarized TV cameras yeah. <laughs> that will broadcast this bout to millions of spectators across the galaxy. <laughs> Oh.
4: I do hope they install those solarized TV cameras with solar wrenches. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh man. You got to love that jargon, right? Solarized TV cameras. That's great.
4: Yeah, cosmic solarized. Ugh. There
3: you go. Wild. Yeah. Well, just then, the jolly mood ends as Dr. Smith's mini-me opponent arrives. Strangely accompanied by sinister music signaling trouble ahead. Uh oh. Still high on his own supply, the star attraction is all too ready to get the formalities over. But he's flummoxed by more humorous hardship as he tries to make his way through the ropes and onto the canvas.
4: I think he might have made a good soccer player in our team, <laughs> Dr. Smith, the <laughs> way he's handling those ropes.
3: <laughs> Another fullback in training Exactly Finally, with Mr. Miko's assistance Our pretentious prize fighter Enters the ring And settles into his corner For what is sure to be His moment of triumph mm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Kurt As short as it was That act-out scene Seemed a little schizophrenic to me On the one hand it was trying to amp up the danger factor with that ominous underscore as the midget entered the ring yep. but at the same time they were still feeding us a lot of this slapstick stuff with smith getting all tangled up in the ropes etc i thought it kind of spoiled the usual cliffhanger edge you normally get even on the campier episodes we've seen which is odd because <laughs> spoiler alert So far, except for the next part coming up, this story's been mostly light on comedy. Am I off base here, or did you kind of feel the same way?
4: No, it did feel awkward, because we know what's at stake with this fight, and so do the aliens, and so do the Robinsons. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only person who doesn't seem worried at all about losing is Smith, and he's the one that the fate of our planet is depending on. So we're all on pins and needles while he's messing around with the ropes, and Uh, it is getting nerve-wracking.
3: Sheesh. Oh it is, it is. So that was kind of a little bit of a misfire, I thought. I even in the comedy episodes, I like it when the cliffhanger seems to have like some real drama, you know, some real stakes involved, like you say.
4: It's interesting how horror and comedy often mix really, really well, you know. But suspense and tension with comedy doesn't necessarily work really well. You know, it's kinda of like if it bends, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny.
3: It's yeah. funny you mentioned that, because I was just watching like a week ago or something on, uh, was it, Turner Classic Movies or something. They had like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And yeah, it's got a lot of that kind of stuff in it. But I love that, <laughs> that movie, because the monster scenes are actually pretty scary, even though, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Bud is running around. Ah! <laughs>
4: yeah, that. and they, the people they have play the monsters are all the real people, you know, like Lord Cheney and Glenn Strange and mm-hmm. Bela Lugosi. It's,
3: exactly. It's amazing they're pretty good they're actually pretty good and they use that same stuff they have the scary music and everything as well as the comedy so that's kind of funny exactly well folks with the fate of our planet riding on the outcome of this drama on gamma stay tuned until after this word from our sponsor to see what happens next Lost in Space
1: has been brought to you by.
3: This nonprofit podcast is made possible with support from.
4: Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at MonsterWax.com. That's Monster, W A X.
3: And also, through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit Patreon.com and search Alpha Control. When we return from the break to start the last round of this story... We're ringside at the Gamma Games Arena. With the camera positioned in Tiger Smith's corner, we can see the phony fall guy, Gio, seated in the opposite corner, backed by his seconds, Gromak, and another alien giant. Acting as referee and MC. Mr. Maiko barks into the hanging microphone to theatrically introduce... From the planet Zinkoa, the Mighty Mike, Geo, who stands arms raised in a victory pose and mugs for the camera. Then Maiko gives an equally showy introduction to not doctor, but professor uh, Zachary Tiger Smith.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm.
3: But his victory stance is spoiled when the prissy peacock clumsily bounces off the ropes on his side of the ring. Boing. (laughs) You know, you got to mention my
4: favorite piece of modern technology here, the cosmic microphone that hangs down in the center of the boxing ring so Michael can introduce (laughs) each boxer. This match is outside. There is no roof or rafters. Where does this microphone cord go? You know, does it lead up to a flying saucer hovering above them in orbit, I know. or does it go all the way across the galaxy to the planet Gamma? You know, either way, that's got to be one long ass cord.
3: <laughs> Some little monkey is up on the flying saucer, reeling the line back in and yeah. back down every time he needs it. No, I thought the same thing. That's hilarious. <laughs> A solarized microphone. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, before the opening bell, Maiko issues the referee's traditional final instructions. Sizing up his competition as he listens, our grinning galactic hero can't resist giving the undersized underdog a patronizing pat on the head before both fighters are directed to return to their corners. (laughs) Just then, Dr. Smith's cornermen, Will and the robot, arrive ringside, just in time to witness his inevitable victory. Yeah, inevitable. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, Will begs Dr. Smith not to go through with it. It's too dangerous. But Smith scoffs.
4: Dangerous? Indeed. Have you seen my opponent? He'll be mere child's play for me.
0: Warning, appearances can be deceiving.
4: Silence, you jabbering Judas. Dr. Smith, please withdraw while there's still time. You know what will happen if you lose. Think what will happen when I win. Now stop worrying, William. The outcome of this fight is inevitable. Ah, the bell. I shall get this over with very quickly. Never fear, Smith is here. <laughs>
3: Still facing away from him, Dr. Smith is caught off guard by his abbreviated antagonist, who comes out swinging, taking unfair advantage as Will and B9 struggle to help their miffed miscreant remove his boxing robe without the use of his arms for the moment. Smith's stuck on the ropes and forced to fend off Geo's below-the-belt beating, by comically kicking the little alien away. <laughs> when he finally frees his fists from the robe sleeves, Dr. Smith spins around and accidentally delivers a roundhouse left swing that, much to Maiko's chagrin, sends little Geo careening across the canvas and seeing stars.
4: Ah, uh, you see? As easy as pie, just as I told you. And now, for the coup de gras.
3: But just as he swings to deliver the knockout blow, Smith misses when Geo pulls his signature disappearing act.
4: Where are you? Come back. I know you're here somewhere. You dreadful little man. How can Dr. Smith fight someone he can't see?
0: I know what is about to happen, and I cannot bear to watch.
3: Uh Uh-oh. Desperately trying to find the sawed-off sorcerer, Dr. Smith is blindsided, When Geo reappears and sends Smith bouncing head first off the ropes with a low blow kick in the butt. (laughs) Ouch! How dare you! Dr. Smith cries foul, but the rascally ref rules it a fair blow. Oh dear. Incensed, Tiger Smith nevertheless sallies forth once more into the fray. Unfortunately, Before he can lay a glove on him, the laughing Lilliputian pops out of sight again. Good heavens. He's in back of you.
4: He's in front of you.
3: He's in back of you. He's in front of you. He's in front of you. He's in in back of you. Smith spins around, searching in vain for the invisible imp.
4: Where is he? Where did he go?
3: When suddenly, look out. Oh no. Wow. (laughs) Oh boy. Well, having left our glass-jawed gladiator seemingly down and out with that last haymaker, little Geo returns to his corner. But before the smiling Maiko can count Smith out of the fight, One, the gap-toothed two, goon three, is foiled five, when six, the bell rings. Seven, eight, Ending the round in the nick of time, <laughs> Will races into the ring and helps the day's doctor. I'm innocent. <laughs> Upon his feet and back into his corner. Despite claiming to be all right, it's clear from the gibberish he's spewing, the woozy wordsmith's in no shape to go the distance with the runty rival. Stating the obvious, that since Dr. Smith is overmatched, it's futile to continue. The robot throws in the towel. Literally. A delighted Mr. Maiko declares, Gio. The winner! By default... Oh, no, indeed. Sheesh. Well, Will lodges an official protest that it wasn't a fair fight because Dr. Smith was never told that the midget could disappear, to which the deceitful double-talker crows. He never asked me. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, that fight sequence was about as campy as they come, Kirk, but I liked it. (laughs) But at the risk of overthinking this, I do have to ask one question. Why was it that every time Little Geo disappeared, he had to reappear in order to punch, kick, or otherwise attack Dr. Smith? I mean, maybe I'm missing something here, but if I had the ability to become invisible, the last thing I'd do is reappear until after I'd won the match. Any theories?
4: uh uh-huh. Well, I'm really glad you asked that question, because maybe you don't want to overthink it, but overthinking hypothetical science fiction nonsense is my primary function on this show. Mm-hmm. Bad and making off-color comments. So, here's my theory. <laughs> Geo is not just disappearing. He's actually teleporting somewhere else. Mm. We know this because we saw that when Smith tried to land that coup de gras, he swings his fist right at Geo's face, but Geo vanishes and Smith's arm passes through empty space. He's not invisible. He's actually not there. Mm. And the only way Geo can land a blow is to teleport back and deliver the blow in person. When I first saw and realized this, I thought, wow! This is great. You know, just when you think Lost in Space is getting lazy and making up the laws of physics as it goes along to force fit whatever the week's plot device is, they surprise you with a rather sophisticated, original, and theoretically plausible sci-fi concept. Isn't that genius?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's genius, and I do like your theory, but I have a sneaking suspicion there's a fly in this Irwin Allen ointment somewhere that might be <laughs> that might become revealed later on but <laughs>
4: well yeah and that's when the cold reality hits you in the face even harder than John's belt that Lost of space is getting lazy it is just making up the laws of physics as they go along to force fit whatever this week's plot device is, even if it completely contradicts the rules they established just a few seconds beforehand
3: Ugh. exactly Oh no! It's a great try, though. I give you points
4: for <laughs> try. Hey, it's a moment of glory that's wonderful while it lasts.
3: That's great.
4: Which is about ten, fifteen
3: seconds. <laughs> and as you reminded us last time, all glory is fleeting. Right? <laughs> that's right. There's a midget whispering in your ear. <laughs> oh dear. That's great. Well, rejoining Smith and the robot, Will manages to peel the punch-drunk pigeon off the ropes and help him out of the ring, just as a grim-faced Professor Robinson arrives. After Coach B-9 escorts the loopy loser away, John saved the trouble of saying, I told you so, when Will admits that both he and Dr. Smith were wrong to trust Mr. Maiko. But with Earth now facing almost certain destruction from an alien attack, The Professor offers to throw his hat in the ring by fighting little Geo and proving to Mr. Maiko that not all Earthmen are weak and cowardly.
0: Just a minute, Maiko! You missed a wonderful fight, Professor Robinson. Of course, Dr. Smith was no match for little Geo. You can't judge the actions of Earth people by Dr. Smith. I would have preferred someone else, but I had no choice. You refused to fight, remember?
1: Well, that was my error. But I'm willing to accept your offer
0: now. Too late, Professor. The bout is concluded. What's the matter, Maiko? Are you afraid I'll beat your champion? Alright. You may fight, little Geo, if you wish. But remember, nothing will be changed. And yeah, we'll see about that. When I give the signal, let the bout begin.
3: So the contestants return to their respective corners, awaiting Miko's signal for the bout to begin. That gives Will just enough time to warn Dad about Geo's disappearing act. When the evil MC calls time, the combatants guardedly approach each other. And just as expected, when they close to within arm's reach, the wee willy wizard pops out of sight. Now what? Unfazed, Professor Robinson evens the odds by removing his leather belt and whipping it around the empty ring to stalk his ethereal enemy. Every hit, ouch, the professor scores elicits a cry of pain from little Geo,
4: Oh, help, ouch!
3: A worried scowl from Miko and a hopeful
4: come on, Dad!
3: Ooh. From Will. Ouch! Finally corralling the transparent trickster into a corner. Ooh! John manages to get a grip on the mouthy munchkin, which thankfully forces the pint-sized feluca to pop back into view and beg to be released.
4: Ouch! Oh, put me down. Put me... I give up. I give up. Mm. Ah, so let that be a lesson to you, folks. Never trust Maiko or Lost in Space to play fair and consistent with the law of physics. Mm. But, you know, there's another reason why they did it this way, you know, showing them appear and disappear and everything. Sure. Because it's comedy. And it's funnier to see a midget reappear, deliver the blows, and then disappear again. Right. And it's not so much funny watching a midget wearing pillow-sized boxing gloves getting bloodied up by the bare-knuckled John Robinson. Did you notice that detail? Yeah. He didn't have any boxing gloves on, you know? But the midget had these big pillows on his hands. So unless the midget had some dramatic advantage, like invisibility, Mm. the audience would have been outraged to see John beat up a child-sized opponent. Yeah. It wouldn't be funny. I mean, it is funny to see Smith get beaten up. I mean, he deserves (laughs) it. (laughs) But not some tiny little midget. So yes, it completely contradicts the teleportation gimmick. But this was pre-VHS TV, and it's not like future audiences are going to carefully watch, replay, analyze, and dissect scenes for scientific accuracy. Only idiots would even try to do that. (laughs) It's getting kind of hot in here.
3: (sighs) Yeah, who will go unnamed? (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, they had to do it that way because mm. they would have gotten a lot of angry letters if it had gone the other way. So
4: Remember when they did that Randy Newman song called Short People? Yes. And that
3: created a big outrage? I you know, know. <laughs> I know. And that was just a song. you know? <laughs> My gosh. Oh, dear. Wow. Well, with his chump change champion humiliated, Maiko grudgingly concedes that while Professor Robinson's exhibition match with poor little Geo was interesting. The decision to invade Earth has already been made. Triggered by the alien's taunt, John impulsively pushes Maiko out of the way and takes a swing at the gargantuan Gromac, who retaliates with a heavyweight hit to the head that sends Professor Robinson reeling backwards and eating canvas. Oh boy. (laughs) I don't know why he decided to hit Gromack. Why didn't he hit uh, Maiko after all he owes him one? (laughs) That's strange. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, the camera cuts to a close-up of the underhanded umpire sneering in satisfaction at John's momentary misstep. But when Professor Robinson leaps up to continue the fight, Maiko ends the contest by drawing his stylish stiletto and reminding John once again that he had his chance to fight in the games. Now, it's too late, and the Earth people must suffer the consequences. Oh, dear. You know, Kurt, given all the brains versus brawn talk we've had in this episode, I thought it was clever of Barney Slater to have Professor Robinson outsmart the midget with the belt trick, and it supported a major theme of the episode, but... I think that was undermined when John impulsively tried to take out Gromak with that sucker punch of his own. As a matter of fact, it seemed out of character to me. What did you think?
4: Well, that kind of depends on what planet you're from. Like John, I happen to be from the planet Earth. So, like him, I'm desperate to do anything to prevent Miko from invading and enslaving all my friends and relatives. Uh, whose side do you want, anyway? Are, are you a racist? Do you mind if I ask? Because what? you don't seem to care very much for the human race. What? Well, I, I only ask because, you know, Miko looks human, too, but clearly he's not. Yeah remember, the robot alerted us in the first scene that they were all aliens. So, yes. are you an Earthling or not? Just <laughs> spell that out to me right now. I,
3: I'm curious. Of course I'm human, Kirk. Pay no attention to my <laughs> pod in the next room. Okay. <laughs> uh, Your wife would disagree, I'm sure. Yep. Well, let's don't go there, right? <laughs> but uh, No, it's funny. It's it's true, though. Uh, he's desperate, right? Yep. I mean, he's going to do whatever it takes, I I guess to uh, to save earth right yeah so i guess i can give him a pass for doing whatever it takes you, you make a fair point there mm. well next with the act nearing its closure professor robinson watches in frustration as mr maiko marches out of the ring and heads back to his tent will tries to take the sting out by telling dad there was nothing else he could have done exasperated john says "There has to be something It's our only chance of... Then stops mid-sentence as he spots the alien passing by the wheel of life. With a look of deadly determination, the professor proclaims... It's our only chance of saving Earth. Before the pretentious promoter disappears into his teepee, John stops him dead in his tracks by bellowing out... Michael! With Will in tow, the professor strides over to the alien apparatus and issues the one challenge Maiko can't refuse. If, as he claims, Earthmen are weak and without courage, then why not prove it with the Wheel of Life? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now, with his own honor at stake, Maiko stiffens and replies, Very well, Professor, as you wish. We shall test one another at the Wheel of Life. Oh boy. Locking eyes with a worried will, John tries to explain that no matter what happens, this had to be done. Wow. Having spoken what might be his last words to his son, the professor gives him a fatherly pat on the cheek, then turns back to face his corrupt competitor. The stakes couldn't be higher, as the two adversaries take their places on simple bar stools on either side of the diabolical device. Feigning an air of magnanimity, Maiko gives Professor Robinson first draw. As he stares down his opponent, John wastes no time and quickly reaches for his controls. When he pulls the lever, Maiko flinches until a cloud of harmless smoke wafts over his pock-marked face and then allows a satisfied grin to cross his lips as he crows. Now it is my turn. Unfazed, Professor Robinson maintains a cool demeanor as the alien slowly moves for his button. Luckily for John, Miko fires a blank as well, which causes the crooked-toothed creep to grimace as the next pair of weapons rotate into position. With the tension building, both men maintain an icy silence as we cut between close-ups of the professor's serene face and Mr. Maiko's now sweat-covered mug. With a worried Will watching from a distance, John takes his turn, which gives the alien a second start, followed by another gentle jet of gas.
4: Well, forgive me for prolonging the suspense even longer, but I want to mention that this duel is reminding me a lot of the kind we used to have at my old high school, Wentworth Military Academy in Lexington, Missouri. I should point out, yeah. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) I should point out that these potentially lethal contests Uh, were not sanctioned by the administration and would have been condemned if they had known about them. But sometimes cadets would confront one another in a seminar challenge, (laughs) on the field of honor was usually hidden inside the barracks, and the gentle jet of gas was a much louder and pronounced blast of deadly flatulence. (laughs) And for some reason. These tournaments always seem to occur mostly on Taco nights and they sometimes even included a cigarette lighter but let's not get into that. <laughs> I probably said too much already. So let's return to the thrilling conclusion of the other duel already in progress.
3: Oh my god. It sounds like
4: you guys had similar things with the Air Force.
3: Yeah, what would you call that? The wheel of farts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's hilarious Yeah, Boys will be boys They will <laughs> Those are some rank recollections, man Wow Well, realizing his odds have improved Maiko's sinister smile speaks volumes As he gleefully grasps his switch But instead of a deadly laser blast The professor draws only a further Benign puff of smoke <laughs> Having rolled snake eyes again Miko's smarmy smirk vanishes quicker than the vapor from that last shot when the cruel contraption completes its final turn of the Wheel of Misfortune. Professor Robinson calmly spells it out for Miko. They're down to the last two shots, and since he gave John the first turn, the next is Miko's. Both men's faces fill the screen as the professor goads the sweat-soaked alien into taking his turn. Maiko's eyes nervously glance down at his trigger, while John reminds him, It's no longer 5 to 1 now. It's even money. But Maiko must not like those odds, because when the professor raises his voice, and dares him not once, but twice to push it, the played-out pretender answers by jumping back from the table like a scalded dog. Pulling a reverse-dirty Harry, John gets up and pulls Maiko's trigger, which fires a deadly laser beam that would have killed Professor Robinson. Yikes! Having folded like a cheap suit, when he could have been the winner, the alien averts his eyes and listens as the professor sternly warns. The people of Earth are peaceful by nature, but just because they don't like to fight doesn't mean they won't. Disgraced before the entire galaxy. (laughs) Maiko meekly concedes the point and assures Professor Robinson that Earth will not be invaded. Having heard what he came to hear, John and Will leave Mr. Maiko alone to wallow in his own shame. Well, that cosmic contest of Russian roulette was a great climax to this story, Kurt. And I thought it was staged and shot very effectively. But this wouldn't be Alpha Control if I didn't point out two very nitpicky issues I noticed after after watching this episode. Oh, I don't know, six or maybe eight times. <laughs> One is a minor continuity issue. Professor Robinson wasn't there when Maiko demonstrated that deplorable device to Smith and Will. So it left me wondering, how did he know it was called the Wheel of Life?
4: Yeah, yeah, that was weird. I mean, Professor Doe at all just knows it all, but it was still weird.
3: Yes, yes. I mean, maybe Will mentioned it, but we never saw that. So I guess in that case, it would really just be story economy. Yeah. But that's not a big deal. And Blooper 2 is also very minor, and perhaps you caught this watching the episode, but when John took Maiko's last shot that fired the laser beam into the rock, even though it lasted just a second, Mm -hmm. there was something about that shot that bothered me, but I couldn't figure it out until I did a freeze frame and saw that there were actually two of the wheel's weapons visible in that frame. One was aimed at the exploding boulder, and the other one was pointing, as they say, stage right. Now, for some reason, when they animated the laser beam, instead of compositing it on the gun that was fired, quote unquote, into the rock, they dropped it on the other one. Did you catch that? It was a weird, weird thing.
4: No, I didn't. But as you described it, it suddenly occurred to me what caused that. Mm. Uh, And and of course, I'm going to add that to my list because I love those little inconsistencies. But the reason that that happened, I'll bet you anything, is because when they send that film off... To the special effects people. It's a whole different department. It's a whole different, it's yeah. like industrial line magic. Right. They just say, fire the laser from the barrel, but they didn't tell them which barrel. Right. So they got it and they had to shoot it and it, you know, they may have been late at night or they couldn't reach the person that had to tell it. So they just had to take an educated guess and they fired it off and there was a time to correct it. And they had to use what they had. I'll bet you anything
3: that's what it was. Well, it makes it kind of well, makes but see,
4: No, no, no. You're going to say, but shouldn't they have noticed that it was shooting at the wrong one? They don't send them the whole film. They only send them that segment. So they had no idea which one was aiming at John. In fact, they didn't even know it was aiming at John. They didn't know what the context was of that scene. They just got the clip and they said, animate a, a laser blast coming out of the barrel.
3: So they. Right. And I'm going to say it kind of makes sense because the barrel that's pointing stage left or stage right, stage right is actually the one that's closer to the viewer, if you will. It's in the foreground and the other one pointing at the boulder is in the background. Yeah. I did look at that thing about five or 10 times to make sure I wasn't seeing things, but you're probably (laughs) right. They saw that, hey, there's the barrel. It's the one in the front of the thing. They obviously want us to animate the beam on that one. Otherwise, they'd show it from a different angle. Right. So.
4: Yeah. And it wouldn't have been quite as impressive because. be going, you know, vertically as opposed to horizontally, and you don't get the full effect, but...
3: You would uh, think that they would know because of the flash powder explosion, but you're right. They don't send them the whole film. They just send them the clip of the gun. You know, it's probably even a still shot, you know?
4: Okay, wait a minute. You mean to tell me... That- that not only did it shoot out of the wrong barrel, but that the flash powder went off on the other boulder, and they still didn't get it. Are you telling me that?
3: Well, yeah, but I'm. I'm thinking they didn't see that part. I don't oh, know.
4: That's incredible. I can't <laughs> wait to go back to see that. I
3: I've come to love these little things. You know,
4: I, I, it's like I say. There's always got to be a fly in the Irwin Allen ointment. Yeah. And if there's not, I'm actually disappointed with it. But. I got another nitpicker point that's just as juicy as yours, maybe even juicier because it's even more in your face. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it, okay? Do tell. I want to hear it. (laughs) Okay. Go back. And when you watch Miko first demonstrating the wheel alive to Smith and William, the Earthlings stand around and watch as Miko shows how it works. Right. He only pushes the button for two barrels. Okay, one to show the harmless wisp of gas or smoke, <laughs> and then mm. the other time to show the laser blast. His dialogue indicated that he knew that the second barrel was the deadly one, even though he couldn't have known that Smith was going to ask him about the device. In other words, he knew which was the deadly barrel during practice sessions, so he damn sure had to know which one was going to be loaded for the main event, because like most boxing matches, this Wheel of Life is rigged! Ah. Except when the writers need a really cool and cinematically suspenseful ending, <laughs> which this story provides, <laughs> until I just ruined it for you, that is. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense when in the context of the whole story. No. But of course, 40, 50 minutes have passed between those two occurrences, and few of us are going to remember <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> Not
3: Alpha <control. laughs> Yes. <Yeah. laughs> That's great. Well, with the story nearing a close... We cut to the far side of the arena, where with his back to the camera, Tiger Smith is busy burdening his personal porter, the robot, with his loose gear. Just then, John and Will arrive on the scene as the boy lauds his father. Gee, Dad, you were great.
4: May I add my congratulations, Professor? You were
3: magnificent. We don't need any ingratiating speeches from you, Smith. If it hadn't been for you, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. You're quite right to excoriate me. Professor Robinson continues to berate Smith for his grand tour de force of stupidity, but stops mid-sentence and erupts in laughter when the shame-faced shyster spins around to reveal a prize-winning shiner on his right eye. (laughs) Oh, the pain. The pain. (laughs) Come on, Tiger. Maybe Maureen can find you a beefsteak for that eye. Our fearless foursome start back for the Jupiter campsite. But Dr. Smith pauses long enough to take one last jab at his loyal sparring partner, B-9. Coach, indeed, it's all your fault. Giving us yet another, all's well that ends well, happy ending. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt... Give us your thoughts on The Deadly Games of Gamma 6.
4: Ah, well, you know, I want to mix things up a bit this time, and I'm going to ask you to go first. you mind? No,
3: okay. Oh, I'm honored. Wow. Well, they skipped out on a monster this time, but in addition to the obligatory Dr. Smith hijinks, I do think they had an interesting villain, there was some realistic suspense, and an exciting finish. Mm -hmm. but I guess what most resonated with me was the interaction between father and son in this episode. You know, as I mentioned before, I've got three boys of my own, so I could really identify with both John and Will. You know, growing up, I really idealized my father, who (laughs) you got to meet and you remember was a larger-than-life character, to say the least. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Well, like most boys back then... I thought my dad had all the answers, and there wasn't anything he couldn't do. Much later in life, when I became a father, I soon realized what a very high bar that was to uphold. And as John rightly tells Will, it's unrealistic. So I thought that was very touching how he handled all that. Mm -hmm. Now, as usual in Lost in Space, (laughs) in the end, Professor Robinson winds up saving the day in a high-stakes contest that he was forced to fight. But for me... That fact didn't spoil the overall theme of picking your battles wisely. Because as you pointed out, he was willing to risk his life to save the Earth. Yep. So like he told Will, quote, no matter what happens, this had to be done. That was a very powerful moment between father and son, and I loved it. Yep. So yeah, it's not my favorite episode of season two so far, but I do think it had a lot of heart, and overall, I quite enjoyed it. What's your verdict, sir?
4: Oh, well, well, I liked it. Mm. The big showdown at the end was beautifully staged and very similar to Clint Eastwood's 3 way 'em up at the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yes. Who could forget that tight close-up of all those sweating guys, you know, Eli Wallach and Lee Van Cleef facing off against the intense but cool Mm. Clint Eastwood. The film... And this TV show were shot at the same time in 1966, so no one could be accused of copying one another. It's just a neat cinematic coincidence. Sure. But one I bet Mike Kellan really appreciated it because it showed off his confrontational acting chops. And he was fun to watch here. And it was also fun to see Guy Williams get some good material as well. Right. So while it wasn't my favorite episode this season, it did make the top third, and it's very solid and entertaining. And I do want to point out a little detail in the dialogue that I thought was interesting. Sure. At the end, after John scolds Michael for doubting Earth's people and courage at the Wheel of Life, Michael said something I thought was really interesting. He says, mm. I'm sure the military leaders of our galaxy recognize that now, Professor Robinson. They have witnessed the contest. Your planet will not be invaded. So, Mm. according to Maiko, it wasn't just the military of his planet or even his solar system that were going to invade Earth, but his entire galaxy was going to attack (laughs) Earth. Those are impossible odds. No single planet could possibly win against it. But then it occurred to me, the Wheel of Life doesn't really test someone's courage to fight, but rather their willingness to die at the press of a button. Mm. Now, recently, you probably remember during the 9-11 anniversary we just had, there was a lot of talk about how millennials don't know what it was like before 2001 when the World Trade Centers were still standing and we weren't under this constant fear of a terrorist attack. Right. They'll never know what it was like before that fear you know, came down on us. Well, 10 years earlier in 1991, the Soviet Union fell. And for decades before that... We had a greater fear. Our country used a defense system very similar to this wheel of life. The official military strategy for both countries was that if either side attacked, both sides would start pressing buttons to launch nukes until the world was literally destroyed. Correct. They called it Mutually Assured Destruction, M-A-D, or MAD for short. This was a subconscious fear everyone in our generation had (laughs) during that time. (laughs) It was. And whenever that distinctive tone of the emergency broadcast system would come on the radio, we'd all pause and hold our breath just for a moment to make sure it was only a test. Fortunately, in 1991, the USSR fell and the nightmares ended. But get this, that madness started in 1962, just four years before the Deadly Games episode aired. So I'm convinced this Wheel of Life was actually a Cold War allegory. Ah. Yeah. Ironically, Mad worked both in reality and in this fictional episode. It did prevent an invasion by the Soviets, because what was the point of invading something if you had to destroy everything first? And the aliens in this episode seemed to come to the same conclusion when they called off their invasion. Mm. Sure, they could beat us, but why fight when the prize is nothing but a radioactive dead rock? Right. Now, you might be thinking this is all just a coincidence, like most of the other sci-fi BS that I pedal on this program. It's just <laughs> baloney. And you might be right, but I'll leave you with one last piece of evidence before you roll your eyes and dismiss it all. Mm. Guess what? Just guess what the most common form of nuclear radiation is. <laughs> Go ahead, guess. Uh, dun, dun, dun,
3: what is? Dun, dun, dun. Gamma radiation, Alex? That's right, gamma radiation! (laughs) Deadly gamma radiation. (laughs)
4: Yes, I think
3: Barney Slater
4: deserves a lot of credit for subtly weaving this Cold War theme into the deadly games of Gamma Six without hitting Irwin Allen or the rest of us over the head with it, like Star Trek often did. But uh-huh. way to go, Barney, and way to go Lost in Space.
3: Wow. Well, there's a reason why he was our favorite uh, script writer from season one. And I, mm-hmm. you put that one together beautifully. I hadn't thought of it, but it all fits. I mean... <laughs> It really does when you think about it. And I like the Cold War analogy. That was yep. That was super because, you know, like you said, 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis kind of kicked off this whole paranoia and fear that people had, justifiably so. So that is great. I love it. It gives a whole new twist on the title, doesn't it?
4: Yeah. And I think it's safe to say that this is one episode where the secretary did not come up with the name <laughs> of the episode. Okay?
3: Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Several nights later, our castaways emerge from the Jupiter 2 following a meteor shower and are surprised when Penny strangely discovers an old alien bottle lying on the sand. Hmm. The next day, Dr. Smith and Will are on an inspection tour, checking for meteor damage.
4: Forget the meteor damage. I want to know what happened to the boxing damage on Smith's eye. It's completely healed.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I guess Marine's beefsteak here really does work. Wow. Man, they go from famine to feast on Lost in Space. One week they have no food left and they're eating protein fills. The next they have beefsteaks to waste on Smith's eye.
4: What gives? I don't understand yeah. God. You know, and I, I mean, the canned ham, at least with the one that the sand monster ate, at least that was in the can. Beefsteak, how are you going to preserve that for two seasons?
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hmm. Well, arriving at the mineral site, Smith decides to relax his delicate back by taking a mid-morning nap next to a large boulder, while Will proceeds to check out the drill itself. After tossing his tools and tool bag on the ground, the boy calls for Smith's help with the job, unaware that a strange, ring-covered alien hand is slipping through a crevice in the rocks and swiping his gear. Uh Uh-oh. When he soon discovers that a wrench has disappeared, the tenderfoot technician asks Smith's help to look for the missing tool, but the lazy loafer can't be bothered and tells the boy to get another one from the tool bag. Yeah. <laughs> when he finds the bag is now gone too, will ask Smith if he took it. Hmm. Getting no answer, the noble lad rifles through the gear next to the sleeping slacker but he fails to notice that sinister alien hand reaching between the boulders to grab Smith's lunch bag. Uh-oh. Thinking it's Will trying to take an early lunch, the dozing doctor chastises the boy and tries to swat the pilfering paw away. Uh-huh. <laughs> Unable to brush off the persistent pickpocket, Dr. Smith finally opens his eyes and screams in terror at the sight of an alien Arabian night armed with a razor-sharp scimitar, and ready to strike. Oh dear, now what? But before we can find out what happens next, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued. Next week, same time, same channel. Wow, Kurt. Seeing how much that sword-wielding alien looked like the title character from Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, has me worried there might be dozens more of these space invaders ready to attack. But then I thought, you know, there's no way Erwin's going to cough up the money to pay that many extras.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah. But I'm nervous to see how they get out of this decapitation situation. That ISIS alien is literally in mid-sword swing. So I don't think even an invisible force will get him out of it this time. We'll just have to wait
3: and see. Yeah, we'll just have to wait. <laughs> Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 38 of Lost in Space, titled The Thief from Outer Space. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.